obviously none of them have been made by Ron Gilbert. Well, um, and then we got those, um, you know, the special editions, the remastered versions. Yeah, I remember them. Like, and, and, and yeah. were they any good? Yeah, they were really good, actually. And I think, you know, if, if anyone wants to kind of explore the original Monkey Island games today, that would be the way that I'd probably suggest that they try them because it makes them a lot more accessible, and obviously you've got, you know, more modern graphics in there, and you get full voice acting, and probably for modern players, it's a, it's a better way for them to experience the story than um, the old pixel graphic version. Well, talking of, like, the voice acting here, uh, Dominic Amato uh, is, yeah. is going to return as the voice of Guybrush, and um, they've also got Dave Grossman on board as well as, like, the co-creator. So, um, yeah. you know, it's the original kind of crew there. It is, and... And, and I think, you know, obviously this is something the fans have wanted for a long time. I'm not sure quite how this has happened. So I remember there was that petition, wasn't there, to get the rights of Monkey Island back into Ron's hands. Do you remember that we talked about probably about four years ago now on the show? Um, and the fact that he's been working on this for two years, even meant that petition was successful, he found a way to do it. Interestingly, though, in the trailer, if you watch it, it's got the, um, you know, you know, now, Lucasfilm Games is called LucasArts, but it's got the old Lucasfilm yeah. logo. Yeah, yeah maybe well, there was that that some deal going on with uh, getting George Lucas involved to talk to Disney and somehow get the rights back. Because, yeah, Lucasfilm Games as well, really interesting. Now, let's talk about the graphics in it, because that is something that already over the last few hours I've seen a bit of a division. Some people think it looks really nice. Other people are like, well, they should have done it pixel style like the original two games. Ah, oh, you've got to move on, haven't you? I think the series has moved on quite a lot, and this looks nicely done, and, like, it's a tiny little trailer. You never know. There could mm. This could zoom out to a whole world. This could be, like, uh, you know, different perspectives on it and stuff. Yeah, I quite like it. Yeah, graphically, it kind of looks like the Monkey Island remasters. Um, but obviously, Ron did, you know, Thimbleweed Park, didn't he? That was kind of that original style. Yeah, yeah. But that was um, more kind of a tribute and a look back to the past. Yeah. This seems like Return. You're going back to the... Same place and situation, but probably not a, a kind of as, as, as retro, maybe continuing the story on. And then hopefully this might be the start of a whole load of series. You know, if this goes down well, then it might continue. And, you know, Monkey Island could be a staple for, like, new generations and new kids to explore. You know, I agree as well about the graphics. I think, you know, the original Monkey Island games, they always pushed the boundary of what the technology could do. And they always move forward with graphical trends, so it wouldn't be fitting to the series if it was retro-themed, I wouldn't think, you know, because that game always was something that looked good for the hardware it was running on. Yeah. So it makes sense that it's kind of nice modern graphics. Though, interestingly, you know, because um, Pirates of the Caribbean, I've always thought it's a total Monkey Island ripoff. Yeah, yeah. I always wondered if that's kind of why Disney never kind of put it out there much, you know, over the last few years, but it is quite interesting that now we're going to get, like, a, a big high-profile new Monkey Island game that apparently is, uh, like you said, he's been working on it for two years. He kept it very secret, though. He's actually announced it on his blog on um, April Fool's Day. <laughs> and a lot of people thought it was a wind-up, even though Ron famously hates April Fool's pranks. And, and, and kind of the humour in Monkey Island has always been really good. And, like, if they get the tone and the humour right, I can imagine them totally ripping into Pirates of the Caribbean. And, like, yeah. you know, it will be a, a parody of it. And, you know, ah. Oh, I can't wait, like, there's Monkey Island jokes that people quote at me uh, about stuff, you know. It's How appropriate like, you like a kid. Yeah, exactly, it's like legendary. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I've got memories of being a kid, you know, on my Amiga 500, my brother and I, you know, hooking it up to the big TV in the living room and uh, just being absolutely captivated by those games. You know, hours could fly by playing them. And actually, now, this is obviously pre the days of voice acting, so I still have to do all the voices from my little brother. 
um, of all the pirates and everything when we're playing it, which I will not imitate right now. Yeah, but it's going to be uh, yeah, going to be great. Have you ever played the Monkey Island games before, Joe? I don't think you're not quite a, a big point-and-click adventure game guy. I was, was going to say I was kind of staying quiet there because I've never played them. Um, and I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, you put me on the spot. I've never played them, but maybe I should check out the remasters. Maybe I should give my opinion on them, or even we could do it in after hours. You know where we pick games for each other before. So you know it's it. I, I should really check them out because a lot of them, like you say, they're on like Xbox One and stuff, and I think it might even be on Game Pass. I know Day of the Tentacle is, and I know that's a similar game, so... Yeah, they definitely were. They might have come off now, but yeah, they definitely yeah. were on Game Pass a while ago. I mean, I think they're already about four or five years ago, yeah. if you buy yeah. Um But yeah, I just think, you know, this the, the games that I've played since then, I mean, I played, um, I think it's Escape from Macau on the PlayStation 2. I actually played that through probably about two years ago, actually, for the first time in a long time. Really enjoyed that, and you know, I enjoyed Curse of Monkey Island as well. Um, I played some of the, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was the Tales of Monkey Island, that was like the, uh, the series that came out in the late 2000s. Mm. I did play a few of those, I kind of gave up on it though for some reason, which you know, might be something I need to revisit, but having, having Ron back at the helm, he's like, you know, he's the heart and soul of the Monkey Island series, so I think this is going to be something really special. Um, yeah, so and really exciting. And new, new kind of systems, new audiences. Uh, mm. You know, it's it's 2022, and it's like might bring a whole new generation to Monkey Island, and uh, I think that's great. It's not just going to like die in the water. And I think Fimble Wee Park proved that he's still got that kind of same cutting humour as well. You know, oh, for sure. Yeah. So there's going to be more of that in there, I'm sure. So no release date is yet. It just says 2022, but hopefully it won't be too long to wait. And if you want to check out the trailer, I'll put that in our show notes at the retrohour.com. Now, it's interesting to see that um, Sony are kind of looking to return to the uh, the retro libraries for their modern systems because it's something that really, I've got to say, on the PlayStation, it's always felt like a bit of an afterthought and something that Sony have never really felt all that bothered about compared to Xbox, you know, whereas Microsoft put a lot of time and effort into um, making original Xbox and Xbox 360 games playable on modern hardware. It's all felt a bit like something that Sony are not really that bothered about but there was that big announcement last week that they're bringing the um, it's a PlayStation Plus Premium, I believe it's called, which is going to be their kind of um, alternative to Game Pass, isn't it? Where they're going to be putting some uh, PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 games on there at a cost. Yeah, so you can't kind of summarise it there and hit the on the head. So let's move on. Next let's story. move on. Next story. Next story. Next story. <laughs> um, but yeah, in seriousness, um, I do agree with you. It's always been a bit of an afterthought. And there's always these rumours like the PlayStation 4 is going to be backwards compatible or the PlayStation 5 is going to be backwards compatible because obviously certain models of the PS3 were backwards compatible, like some of them did PS1 and PS2 and some of them just did PS2, didn't they? And obviously famously the PlayStation 2 was completely backwards compatible with the PS1. But it's always, like you say, it's always been on the back burner, it feels like, in the last kind of like decades, the PlayStation. Um, So, yeah, on the 30th of March they announced the new... PlayStation Plus subscription tiers, um, which we spoke about, I think we spoke about it about this time last year, around a year ago, saying, you know, PlayStation were on about bringing out, you know, similar to Game Pass. Um, but as you say, they've kind of locked them behind the most expensive tier. So you're going to get PS4, PS3, PS2, and PS1 games on this tier, but it's going to be $17.99 a month in Ooh. dollars. So $17.99 a month or $50 for three months, or $120 for a year. So obviously it would be a little bit cheaper for us British in pounds, I imagine. Um, Not normally much. Well, yeah, it will work out the same. It would just be, it'll be like 15 quid a month or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they, there's no news at the point of us recording this 
on what games we're going to get or anything like that. And I'm, I mean, I have a PlayStation 4, but I literally just play The Last of Us and Bloodborne on it. Like, there are the only games I've played for it. Um, I don't play it online or anything like that, so I'm not too sure how PlayStation Plus works at the moment, but I believe it's just like Xbox Live Gold, where you just, yeah, get, yeah. You just get like three or four free games a month and then you can play online, can't you? Yeah. So the new premium is going to be like the Game Pass where you get all the free games, but there's, there's several versions of that premium, isn't there? And it's the top tier one where you get the essentially the backwards compatible retro games on it, isn't it? It's a bit like the Switch do, you know, if you play, play the higher tier, you yeah. can get the N64 and Mega Drive games yeah, on there as well. So, yeah, yeah. So the Switch has the NES and the SNES games, which you get for paying three ninety nine a month, don't you? But then if you pay the yeah, 20, low one. If you pay the $20 a month, you then get the N64 and the Mega Drive. So, interesting that PlayStation has done the same thing, because Xbox is just straight up, you get everything. Yeah, and it's it's quite expensive. So I've used Stadia, I've signed up for that. I've used um, GeForce Now. I've used quite a few of the services yeah, on you've, the PC. Yeah, you've been quite a few of them out. For yeah, like yeah, days. streaming ones. And this seems expensive. I wonder if they're going to do a PC release of this as well. So, you know, it can be used on other systems. But um, I'm looking here as well. You are getting quite a few consoles there. You're getting PS3, PS2, PS1, and PSP as well. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know what? I didn't mention that, yeah. So PSP, you know, that might be interesting. But it all depends how they're ported. I'm sure they'll do a good job of it. But it's, oh, it just depends how many yeah. as well, though. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, with, with Xbox, you can literally port your old original Xbox C or DVD, wasn't it, into your Xbox Series X, and then it will download the emulated rapid version of it straight onto your SSD. Yeah. So you can play it, you know, with your original disc. I imagine on this, though, it, Sony's never done anything like that before, really, have they? Even if you buy kind of PS2 games and stuff off the off the store, they're always kind of got to buy them again. You can never put your original games in there. it would be what third-party developers they've done a deal with to become yeah. part of this. You know, obviously they're going to have the Metal Gear Solid and all of that kind of stuff, but it's going to be which companies that they got on board. Well, you say yeah. that they're Konami games, so... Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking that because they were the exclusive. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Um, but, no, I, I see what you're saying as well. You know, you might pay this premium, but then you only actually get two PlayStation games. Like, you sat there hoping, oh, I hope I get the original Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 or, you know, Metal Gear Solid. But, you know, we just don't know at this point what we're going to get. But I'm sure, like on Game Pass or Xbox, you don't have to sign up to see what's on there. You can have a look through the library yeah. and then you can decide whether you want to pay for it or not. If it hasn't, hasn't got panda, uh, Pandemonium, then I'm not going <laughs> to... <laughs> I'm paying 50 quid a month for Pandemonium. <laughs> That's my style. You know, it, it is interesting. There's um, you know some quotes in this article on The Verge of um, Jim Ryan, you know, the PlayStation boss. Um, he was talking about um, an interview that he did back in 2017. Mm. He said the dabble then with backwards compatibility, and he said, you know, it's one of those features that a lot of people wanted, but don't talk, don't actually use it that much. Which you know we've seen that with Xbox. I think it was something like you know less than 10 percent of people ever actually played any of the older games on the modern Xboxes. But it does seem to be a feature that a lot of people kind of say they want. And then he said he was at an event where he saw um, some old PS1, PS2, Gran Turismo games, and he said they looked ancient. And he was like, why would anyone? ever want to play these now. So that that was one of the reasons he, he kind of put out there for not ha actually doing backwards compatibility before. Yeah, I must um, say, like, you know, the PS5 is an expensive console, and then getting this on top of that being more expensive than Games Pass, you would have thought that they would have c tried to undercut it, you know, and maybe have the hardware expenses. I, I, I mean, 
with you just saying that then, I'm I'm hoping, just from what you've just said there, it's just made me think, well, maybe it's going to be a huge library. Yeah, you know, like everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that would be amazing. I, I seriously doubt it, but, you know, if they suddenly turn around and go, here's 500 games yeah, across yeah. the PS1 to 3 and the PSP, you know, that would be unreal, and it would justify, you know, £15 a month or $17.99 a month. Um, here's Dusty 3D! <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you are saying that apparently up to 340 games are going to be available on the premium oh, okay. tier. It doesn't say how many of those are retro games, it doesn't say. That's a, that's um, a pretty decent amount. Um, I haven't seen that. I don't know how many is on Xbox Game Pass, but it's a, it's a fair chunk. You know, you have to, when you go through the list, there's a lot of games on there. I would, I would say to say it's probably more than 100. And it, is it that, like, sign up once, download, and then not sign up again and still have the ability to play them? That no, no, no. Because no. uh, with Stadia, way. it was like you could play it but at 1080p instead of 4K. So oh, you could, no, you could still play it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. I get deleted off your disc. It makes you pencil. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, they're not games that you're going to own forever, and I imagine, I think you get that often on Game Pass, don't you? You can play it while it's on there, then it, it says this expires in a couple of yeah, months. Yeah, on Game Pass it says, do you want to buy this game as well, like, yeah. next to it, like, when you download it for free? Um, it says, like, free with Game Pass, or would you like to buy it for £20 kind of thing? And it's the same with the Xbox Live Gold. Which is like pretty like, brutal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. don't, if you download a game on Xbox Live Gold, and I'm assuming it's the same on the normal PlayStation Plus, if you then your subscription to Gold runs out, you then can't play those games, even if you've got them downloaded on your on your yeah. Xbox. So I imagine they'll do the same with the PlayStation to stop people like Ravi just downloading them all and then cancelling it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's gonna crack it. <laughs> it's something we've talked about for years. It kind of you know mm. modern day consoles are kind of turning into more of a subscription service, aren't they? Yeah. You know more like a Netflix kind of thing, which is inevitable, really. But I think if they are going to do that, this does kind of feel to me though that like Sony have kind of been forced into doing something they probably didn't really want to do because yeah. you know Xbox and Switch are doing. You know, this focus on retro games as well. And it also felt like Sony just wanted to be like, right, this is the new thing. But now, you know, that through market forces, they're kind of being forced into doing the retro games. Well, well at least you'll well. uh, have something to play on your PS5 now, that. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah, Ravi said that on this, this is an ad, yeah. <laughs> so, but I, say, I mean, for all of us who really care about our retro games, I think we just have the original systems lying around anyway. So it's not something I'm bothered about, but I can imagine, you know, for maybe someone who's a bit nostalgic and got rid of the PlayStation 1, you know, 20-odd years ago. It might be a bit of a cool thing. So uh, another story that we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on. And what about this? This is quite a cool little game. I was playing for a few minutes. Sorry, lads. That's why I was a bit late to the recording this week. Because I was playing Pixel Pat on Intel's website. (laughs) I spotted this the other day. This was on April 1st. And it wasn't an April Fool's Day joke either. Um, But yeah, Intel Pixel Pat is a celebration of the first year of the the new CEO, Pat. Is it Gelsinger? Yeah, I think so. Um, it was a, it's essentially a celebration of, of him being Intel's CEO for a year, uh, which I thought was quite a, a, an interesting move. I mean, I've never heard of the guy, but I'm not a big computer guy like you guys are. But the, the premise of the game is it's an 8-bit side-scroller, isn't it? Like, where it constantly scrolls. It's similar to modern mobile games, and you click to jump, and you, you're running through a chip factory, which I think is quite funny. <laughs> um, and you know, you can collect light bulbs, which give you little facts about Pat, you know, like, you know, how he started his career in 1981 and the different things that he's done for Intel over the years um, and how, like, you know, the reason for this factory that they've built is to kind of challenge 
the chip shortage that we've had over the last couple of years and stuff like that, which, you know, I think I think it's really interesting. But the article uh, on TechSpot, which I think is really funny, points out right at the bottom is maybe it's to cover up the fact that it was recently announced that he got paid $178 million last Ooh, year. Geez, not, that the, right. not the company made that. That's how much he made. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd quit after a year. <laughs> I'd quit after a week. So I'm going to beat if he's got new sense. Yeah. So you know, which apparently was a 698% increase on Bob Swan's pay the previous year. who was the, uh, the CEO of Intel prior to that, and also 217 times more the average salary of an Intel employee. Well, I, I think so, it's interesting that people are kind of using these like little retro games to kind of. To, you know, promote something or make someone seem more human or something like this. Yeah. Like, uh, make them more fun. Like, re- I remember that JLo game that we covered. Ages yeah. Ago, which is yeah, like yeah, yeah. Jenny going through the block collecting shoes. Collecting <laughs> shoes. Like, you know, What's the next one going to be? Mark Zuckerberg is a playable character in San Andreas. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, you know, this, this makes me think, like, there's, there's some young whippersnapper in the PR department. I know, let's make a, a video game of him. Yeah, people will love that. You know? <laughs> they're probably all in these uh, departments at the moment. J-Lo's and, and the person got promoted to Intel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you're not wrong. And I, and I think, you know, that is potentially what it comes down to. It, it is a bit of fun, but it does probably come down to as well of trying to make these billionaire, millionaire corporate people like you're saying, more human and more approachable. Which is weird because you're putting them in a, yeah, in like, yeah. Come on, kind of come on guys, form, I'm just yeah. like you. I'm in a video game. Aren't you guys in a video game? <laughs> I go around <laughs> collecting things and shooting <laughs> enemies. Yeah, I've got a video game based on me that you can all play for free, don't you guys? <laughs> I, I prefer Mario. He's more working class, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, That's the thing. I mean, Pat, he's been in the industry a long time. He's actually the guy, one of the main designers of the, the 486, yeah. you know, back in the day. Um, and you know he's worked for I think he was a VMware as well. He was a CEO there for many years. He's got a big you know history yeah. in the industry as well. But I think you know you're, you're looking at some people are taking this a bit too seriously. I think they're like, oh my god, this is so cringe. I think it's meant to be though. I think you're right. It's meant to just be a bit of fun, isn't it? And the fact that it does educate you, you know, uh, and the fact that we're talking about, about it, you know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's done its job, I think. So yeah. it's a fun little game to play for like. For, for 20, 20 seconds or so. That's <laughs> it's fun. So uh, it's good to check that out. It, it's uh, available now to play in your browser. Are you feeling uh, the post-holiday blues yet, Joe? Are you back from your week away? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Today was my first <laughs> first day back at work, and it was a bit a bit full on. Why, have you got some good news for me? Well, there's something to look forward to. I mean, Ravi's going away on holidays to make us all really jealous. He's off to America for a month. But I know you're going to be dialing in from your travels, Ravi, to join us for our next patrons hangout. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, that's going to be pretty interesting, isn't it? I don't know where I'm going to do it, what the connection is. Am I, uh, <laughs> I might do it from Alcatraz. <laughs> that would be funny. Well, we've got uh, next week's show. You're going to be in your home studio for that. Then after that, yeah, we're kind of into the unknown because uh, Ravi's... Uh, Going there. all over in America. You're going to San Francisco. You're going to New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, going to VCF as well. Um, uh, going all over the place. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. And I'm going to come back full of burgers and fries. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Ravi is going to he's going to keep on doing the show even though you're on holiday. That is oh, the moment, yeah. I think. You've got to work as well, haven't you? 
Yeah, exactly. And you love doing it. This doesn't feel like work, does it? We love doing this every week. So uh, we just want to say a huge thank you to uh, the people who enable us to keep doing the Retro Hour podcast each and every Friday. And that is our wonderful patrons. Now, actually, if you join us on Patreon at the moment, it is a really good time to get involved. Not only would you be able to join us for this month's Hangout and uh, get to see whatever exotic location that Raddy's in, because we do this every month, uh, once a month on a Sunday night, a couple of hours. We send the invite out, and then we generally get, I'd say, you know, if 40 people generally join us now, so it was a really good chat. Uh, we all just nerd out about all things, you know, retro gaming, technology, movies, we talk about music, all sorts of stuff. Uh, just a really chilled hangout. You can come and, you know, just watch if you don't want to take part, but it's always fun to see new people in there as well, and uh, we also like to see people's um, gaming collections and systems and stuff as well, because they normally put ours to shame, actually, don't they, the people on, on the hangout? Oh, yeah, definitely. Some, some, some of them are unreal. I'm just like, oh, I need a whole new house for that, <laughs> so... But they're, they're, they are amazing to kind of gawk at and drool over. Yeah, so all patrons get invited to that. If you'd like to join us for this month, if you join us on Patreon now, you'll uh, see the details of that coming up soon. And you get to listen to, if you're a gold member or above, our exclusive patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, as you listen back to the, the latest one that we just released, all about retro handhelds, that's a really fun episode, actually. Just getting a lot of talk about, you know, our school days and playing, you know, Lynx and Game Boys and birthdays yeah, you know, and Christmases and going on holidays. The best part about it was talking about batteries. <laughs> just, yeah. just the memories of batteries and the hunt to try and get cheap ones. Yeah, it really had a memories flooding back. And, you know, it's... It's not something we talk about that much on the show handouts, actually, and uh, it was really good to do a full kind of, it was nearly two hours, wasn't it, uh, getting deep into handouts. And I think maybe it's on our mind at the moment because we've all got holidays, you know, either coming up or just gone. That was always a thing for me, you know, playing handheld, mm-hmm. on, even now, you know, 3DS, my Switch is all the thing that passes a long playing journey. So I think, you know, they're definitely a big part of it, kind of coming into summer, you know, a lot of people will remember handheld memories from then. So uh, if you want to get access to our patrons exclusive podcast and there is like what twenty two episodes that you unlock. So you can listen to loads of our hours episodes if you join us on Patreon. But really the main reason that you're doing it is just to keep the show coming out each and every Friday. You also get the normal show ad free. We give you exclusive content each week as well. So if you'd like to sign up on Patreon, all the details are at theretrohour.com and of course you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, which I still haven't got any music for. That's like three weeks on the trot now. And um, I'm yeah, slacking, aren't I? It's not good enough, that. <laughs> Hall of Fame! <laughs> maybe, I think maybe Riley could like sing something in the background. I'm going to have, have to compose. <laughs> uh, Hall of Fame music. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week, let's give a huge thank you to our latest patrons, the fabulous Ian Lewis, Richard Frozenwell, Super Lit Mario, Cliff Garrett, and Rodrigo Borges, who all join us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support, and if you'd like to join them, you'll find the details at theretrohour.com. Now, this is something that um, I didn't realise was much of a need for this, but now I've uh, seen this little video that you put out um, on our messenger a bit earlier on today, Ravi, I've not seen this before. A universal keyboard for Ataris. Yeah, this is this is really cool, actually. I've... I, you know, I've always looked at the Atari keyboards and I thought, those slanted keys, oh my God, they're so sexy. <laughs> on the ST and the Falcon. Oh though, yeah, on the ST and the Falcon. So this is a case um, that's kind of a universal Atari keyboard case and it, it's standard for the STF, the STFM, the STE and the Falcon keyboard. And then they can be used on the Atari Mega, the Mega STE, the TT. And also one thing that I used to massively draw over 
which was desktop converted Atari computers. I don't know if you've seen those. Is that where people put like the BST inside like a, a desktop case? Yeah, and then or even Falcons, and then there's like stuff like Radeon cards in there, oh, <laughs> all, yeah, yeah, all yeah. kind of madness. But this this is actually going to be made free on a Thingverse, or it might have a charge with it, but um, it'll be STL files, so you'll be able to print it yourself. But it's been a Created in resin, and this keyboard has some pretty amazing features. So um, it allows you to use USB and wireless mouses, uh, which is a pretty good bonus. Uh, two joysticks can be plugged in at the same time as using the USB mouse. Um, it's got a recessed kind of USB and key, uh, mouse ports at the bottom for easier access. So do you remember with the Ataris underneath? You'd have to kind yeah. of plug them in underneath, and it was always a bit of a faff, wasn't it? <laughs> kind of I've got one set up next to me right now, actually, and yeah, I've never liked that about the ST. Um, and the Falcon, I believe, is the same, isn't it? You've got to lift it up, and the mouse... I don't you've ever seen one, Joe, but the mouse and joystick connector are literally underneath the machine. Oh. So you lift it up, and you've got to plug it in the bottom, which I'm, it always felt about... I'm awesome. looking at the video now, but yeah, I, was, I, didn't, I didn't know that about the original. No. And uh, it's also um, means you can set uh, a kind of... Floppy LED as well, um, uh, if you're using it with the desktop converter. And um, you can also use uh, some extra floppy lights and stuff, and uh, it's got LEDs in there, a power LED. And what what do you kind of think of this, guys? Like, it's got stereo speakers in there as well. I was going to say, you missed out the speakers. Yeah, it's, it's like a full powerhouse, uh, this little device here. And uh, I guess you can use all these little adapters in there as well and stuff. Um, that seem to be made in the uh, Atari market. Can you hear that I'm not an expert on Atari? <laughs> well, you know more about it than me. Well, I think as well, like, I mean, obviously there were, you know, you mentioned stuff like the, you know, the TT and the Mega, which were kind of the desktop Ataris, you know, they were in like a separate case that housed the, um, the motherboard and the floppy drive, and then the keyboard was a separate thing. But I remember, you know, on those machines, the keyboards, they just looked a bit more like standard PC keyboards. They didn't have those, you know, those features you mentioned, like the, the slanted function keys and stuff like that, which, again, I mean, I've got to say, I don't find the, the Atari ST keyboard to be particularly comfortable to use. I find the keys a little bit mushy on it. Okay. You know, it, it always felt like a budget keyboard, but it's undeniable that it looks incredibly cool. And I think, you know, if, uh, if you have got one of those desktop converted things, and there is something about, you know, that kind of takes the soul out of just plugging in a generic keyboard, isn't there, like a PC keyboard into a retro machine? Yeah, you, you so still have like the this. same feel because it'll be the same kind of keys in there, basically. It's just rehoused into this kind of monster. And um, I don't know how rare they are to to get original keyboards and stuff like that um, uh, for the Atari, but like having this with USB and wireless mouse and stuff yeah. is just a, a really good idea. And, and being able to print it yourself, I can imagine you can use your own pigment and you can... Uh, choose the kind of colours that you want and um, customise it. You know, I can imagine this is when he does release the uh, STL vi uh, files on Thingiverse, you know, there'll be some really amazing kind of versions that will come out and uh, crazy colours and all sorts. I've got to say, I mean, you know, 3D printing feels like it's come on a hell of a long way just in the last five years. You know, I'm seeing some really good quality 3D printed products now, whereas before you could always tell, couldn't you? You always had those kind of lines and stuff on the surfaces, and they never looked quite right, but I, I think there's been some, you know, really good stuff coming out recently. Yeah, this was done in resin, yeah, it says, so it's, like, really beautifully uh, well done, but, yeah, I've, I've even seen metal 3D printing, you know, uh, people 3D printing things in metal, so 
Imagine a metal one of these. Ooh. Yeah, if you want to check out the video, I mean, there is like a little 10-minute overview of him um, using it on various Atari systems. I've got to say, I mean, looking at that, I mean, apart from the colour, which obviously this is a, a prototype version, I imagine, it looks like it could be like a a proper genuine factory-made keyboard. Yeah, yeah, it, it looks yeah. really good, yeah. And a lot of thoughts, yeah. obviously, gone into this, so uh, check it out. Now, let's talk about something that we've talked about several times on the show, uh, one of our favourite topics, and that is what pains Nintendo are to the retro community sometimes, because I can't get my head around this one. This is another instance of Nintendo just being unreasonable to the retro community. They've actually taken down some scans of a 1996 Mario 64 guidebook. This is <laughs> it's just getting silly now. Like, I love the, uh, the headline on uh, Kotaku. It's literally... Nintendo takes some cool stuff off the internet, like, get some cool yeah. stuff taken off the internet, again, for like the millionth time. So yeah, about a month ago, uh, a user uploaded a, um, essentially a, a Japanese exclusive guidebook that came out in 1996 for Super Mario 64, so we never got this in the West, and it's all written in Japanese as well. Um, so you, you'd think, oh, what's so interesting about a, an old guidebook in Japanese, but the really cool thing about this is this particular guidebook. I don't know if you guys have seen it because it's not in the article, so I, 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 I encourage you to go. Give <laughs> I it imagine Kotaku don't want to check. Yeah, it's on Pirate Bay now. <laughs> so, go if you just go Google like Mario 64 guidebook, it comes up. But essentially, what what this guidebook did is it it made 3D models of every single level in the game out of like oh, plasticine. That's the only way I can describe it, like, you know, like, like contours and stuff, you know, like you'd mention like geography class at school. Wow. Um, mm. And literally it's got like a, a, you know, isometric view of the levels with like mountainsides and fields and, you know, all the enemies on there made out of like, you know, pipe cleaners and stuff like that. Uh, but it's really well done and it's really adorable. Um, and I would, I would love it if these models still existed somewhere. Um, so, you know, if you're listening to this, go have a Google of it and have a look at it. Like I say, the, the actual guidebook itself has been taken and taken down, but there's a few pictures embedded in some websites and stuff still, so you can... For now. For now, so you can have a look at them. But yeah, this it was uploaded onto um, Comfort Food Video Games, and essentially they don't know why. It was it was taken down. By, by taking it down, they've probably increased the interest in it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. to go, oh, this is I, great. You know, it's interesting you should say that because I actually saw the article to say that it's been uploaded like a month ago, and I thought of putting it in our news, but I just never did. Like I was like, oh, you know what? It's it's not a big news story, and here we are now. It's become a bigger news story because Nintendo has taken it down, and now we have. A guy that just sits in a room in Nintendo who's like, take it down, take, take it, it down, down <laughs> get rid of it. Well, what's, what's interesting is it's come from Nintendo of America, not Nintendo of Japan. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it, it could just, it, 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 that might not have anything to do with it, but the guy who, you know, the guy who runs Comfort Food Video Games is saying it's just bizarre that it's Nintendo of America because they, why, why are they concerned with a guidebook from Japan in 1996? And, it's not like anybody's making any money off it, because nobody was making any money off it on the website for it being embedded and uploaded on there. And nobody's... Nintendo can't possibly make any money from the guidebook from... You know, Unless they were planning to kind of re-release it. I can't see. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's like Nintendo... We've been working on that guidebook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we're bringing it out ourselves. But, 
apparently this guidebook's really expensive to find on eBay or on like Yahoo auctions from Japan. It, it is quite a sort after expensive guidebook, but you can't even argue Nintendo are taking it down because it's so expensive to buy. You know, so we don't want it out there. We want people to buy it because it's not like Nintendo are making any money off it because it's the aftermarket. It's not Nintendo. Yeah, the, the, the only one is the eBay traders, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's it, as always. It's a very odd situation, but. The magazine itself, the guidebook itself, is so adorable. <laughs> well, it was on um, archive.org, that's why they uploaded it to. Mm. Um, and it said, you know, you read through, that there's actually quite in there from comfort food video games. And they were saying, yeah, archive.org got the usual standard takedown notice mm. that Nintendo of America send out to them. I think, you know, whenever anything Nintendo gets put on there, I've got a feeling they just automatically send this kind of cease and desist email. Yeah. Um, regardless of what it is. But I've got to say, I mean, you know, because archive.org is kind of, it, it's the biggest effort in the world to preserve this kind of history. And they yeah. probably so got the uh, biggest team of lawyers as well. <laughs> well, they, they, even they are saying they don't want to take on Nintendo's legal team. Okay. You know, there's no <laughs> reason that they'd want to do that or, or spend the time and money. Because, I mean, I, I've got a feeling, you know, Archive the Org's a non-profit organisation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not the, the kind of thing where they're going to waste millions fighting Nintendo in the courts or something they'll probably lose, you know, if, if, if Nintendo's lawyers got on there. But again, it, you just ask the question that, why are they so protective? You know, there's got to be a bit of common sense in there somewhere. You know, it just seems to be a blanket. Right, it's got Mario on there. That's got to come off. You know, that's just on our website kind of thing. Which just seems really bizarre, isn't it? And I mean, I, I, I kind of get the feeling that Nintendo are getting worse at this as well. Yeah, it feels a little bit like every other week we're mm. either talking about something Nintendo has taken down or, you know, or a, a game that's had to have been changed, you know, the assets are too close, so they've, they've put this out and the other two it. Like, it just, it's a very strange situation, considering Nintendo is such a happy, family-orientated company, they, they, they do seem a little bit, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, I don't, aggressive, hard, yeah, aggressive, yeah. Yeah, hardcore aggressive, yeah, they're good words when it, when it comes to these kind of things, but I don't think they'll ever change, I think this will always be yeah. the case with Nintendo, but it's just, like you say, it just seems to be getting more and more ridiculous. It's it's a magazine. It's not even a game. It's not a video. It's not footage. Nobody's making any money. But luckily, um, they did say an anonymous person actually made a torrent magnet of it as well, which um, is, is apparently out there. I'm just saying, you know, if you are looking at this article, you might find a link somewhere if you want to check that out. So, uh, don't want to sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> not our show notes, obviously, but if we happen to link to a website that's got that on, that's obviously beyond our control. Now, before we get into our interview this week, catching up with the incredible James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd, let's just take a quick moment to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our friends at BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, obviously, at the moment, I mean, you know, the world's been going through so many changes over the last couple of years, and, you know, we often talk about physical health, don't we? People always, you know, what we think, they go to the gym, getting, you know, in shape for summer this year as well. If you've got, you know, a headache, you'll take a tablet for it. You know, if you've got problems with your teeth, you'll go see a dentist as well. But a lot of the time, we don't consider just how important our mental health is. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll always be the one to talk about mental health and be an advocate of mental health. And I'm a really big, strong believer in talking about mental health and not seeing it as a weakness or anything like that. And I'm a real big, strong believer in there doesn't have to be a diagnosis for mental health. It doesn't have to be like, you know, I've got this wrong with me or I've got wrong that wrong with me. You can just have bad days. You can just have good days. You can have bad weeks, bad months, bad years. And when these things happen, there is absolutely no shame in reaching out and reaching out to apps like BetterHelp. And I said it before, I'll say it again. 
if you bought a brand new car and you got told that's the only car you're ever, ever going to have for the rest of your life, you could only ever have this one car, you'd wash it every week, you'd take care of it, you'd get it serviced every year, you'd, get served, you know, you'd do everything you can to keep it pristine. So why don't we do that with our brains and with our bodies? The only thing that we only get one chance at life and we only get one chance with our mind. So we need to look after ourselves and better help is the perfect way to do that, especially if, you know, you just want to do it on your phone because there's, there's so many things you can do with it. Yeah, there are, I mean, it's online happy therapy that offers a video version. Uh, you can do it on the phone as well. There's even live chat sessions with your therapist as well. The thing about it is, I mean, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. You don't even have to put your camera on mm-hmm. if you don't want to. And I think one misconception about therapy is that it's only for rich people. Yeah. And it's really expensive. And this is obviously a lot more affordable than in-person therapy. So you can give it a try. You know, see if online therapy can help lower your stress and help you out. You know, everyone needs it now and then. So... Give it a go, and actually, for using our exclusive link, you will get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So our link is betterhelp.com slash retro, betterhelp.com slash retro. So they know that we sent you, and a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our show. Right, next, we are going to be joined by someone who we've wanted on our show for such a long time, and it's such a good interview as well. Catching up with James Ross, the angry video game nerd, next on the Retro Hour Podcast. Listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on a very special guest. And actually, our guest this week is someone who I think we've wanted to talk to since we started doing this podcast, like what six years ago now. And really, the guy you know, every YouTuber we talk to always mentions our guest this week as being one of their biggest inspirations. Um, I don't want to make you blush or anything, but let's welcome you on, James Rolfe. How are you doing, James? <laughs> doing very good, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us now. Uh, obviously, we need to talk about ABGN and, you know, you know, the veteran of YouTube, really, you could say you are. But I think it's um, always nice to kind of get a bit of background on our guests. I mean, kind of going back to, you know, uh, James as a kid. I mean, what was your first gaming experience then? Do you remember kind of what initially got you into video games? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a blurry memory, but I remember uh, my grandpa and my cousin introducing me to some games at a very young age. Uh, this was before we had NES, so it was uh, a lot of DOS games, um, a lot of uh, Magnavox Odyssey 2. Nice. Yeah, and uh, Atari, of course, Atari 2600. The Atari, I believe, was my aunt's, mm. or my, it could have been my grandpa's, I'm not sure. NES was the first one where I got it as a birthday present, mm. I believe. And I would have been eight at that point. And um, before then, was there much of a, an arcade scene when where you were growing up? Uh, you know what? I didn't really go to the, the video arcades as often. Uh, more in my teen years, mm. so that kind of came later. So I wasn't really in the you know in the arcade scene when Pac-Man and Donkey Kong yeah. was going on. I was a little too young for that. Yeah, I, I, was, I was born on, in 1980, so that that puts a time stamp on it. <laughs> In terms of, like, the NES then, was that kind of, like, how you fell in love with gaming? So you'd played the Atari, you'd played a couple of computer games, and maybe seen a bit of arcade. What was it about the NES? Um, first side-scroller, first time where uh, it was just really surprising when the level was over, but the game continued. Like, I never really saw a game that lasted as long as Mario. It, it was kind of like an ongoing thing, and it was a lot 
a lot more challenging than any game I played before that. It was it was definitely a you know a game changer. I'm guessing you're used to just seeing the the Atari screen, the one screen you get a high score, and then all of a sudden you've got a game with worlds and you know, yeah. levels and stuff like that. So no music, no pause yeah. button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the light guns and all that. So um, was there much of a Sega scene? Did you know anybody with a Master System when you got the NES? Yeah, I I, I saw the Genesis first, uh, or mm. Mega Drive, but uh, as we call it Genesis here. Yeah. But um, I remember when that came out, uh, my next door neighbors had it. Mm. But I also remember I had another neighbor at another time who uh, had the Master System, and it was the, mm. the only person I knew who had one. And I thought that it would be because the Genesis we just call it Sega. You know, everybody yeah. just called it Sega. It's the same here in the UK. Yeah, everybody just called it Sega. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, my friend was like, well, I got the Sega Master System. And I'm like, whoa, the Master System? That, that's got to be better than the Sega, right? Because this is the Master System. <laughs> so uh, I played it, and I'm like, well, what, what is this? <laughs> it's funny because it's exactly the same for me. I, I was born in 89, but my older brother is a similar age to you, and he had a Mega Drive. And when we were growing up, our neighbor had a Master System, and we thought it was the better system. Oh, yeah. Because of the name. You know, we were too naive <laughs> with the graphics. <laughs> we just assumed it was the next one, so it's really funny. That's just kind oh, of wow. Yeah. All I, in the branding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it wasn't too big over here, um, but but I, I hear it was very big in, um, where was it? Uh, I think South America. Mm. It was a lot more popular. Yeah, the Master System. They still manufacture the Master System in Brazil. Um, something to do with, like, taxes and licensing, mm. but... Oh, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but South America and Europe, it was much, much, much bigger. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine had, because um, we had the, you know, the Master System 2, and had um, Alex Kidd in Miracle World built into it, mm. but his mum didn't buy many of the games, so literally that's the only game that he had for the system, the built-in game, and he just played that every weekend oh, yeah. for, like, years. <laughs> oh, I remember this uh, the friend of mine, it was uh, Missile, not Missile Command, uh, Missile Defense was uh, mm. the built-in game on that particular console. I mean, talking about the NES, obviously that was a phenomenon when that came out. I mean, what were kind of your, um, you know, is there any games that stick in your mind as being, you know, must-plays and games that really defined you that you, are, you constantly go back to? You know, it's got to be the Contra games. You know, those were huge Castlevania games, but they, they were a little bit too difficult maybe at the time. Like, those kind of required a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of hours to, uh, you know, get your skills up. Contra was a little bit more, like, it was like a fair difficulty, I thought. And um, what early games really got you frustrated? You know, which ones kind of stood out as horrible games and which ones ended up going into the nerd episodes? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'd say it was a, a horrible game, but Ghosts and Goblins was a, a, a difficult and frustrating game. And I remember I couldn't pass the first level when I was a kid. Or maybe once I got to level two or something, but it was so hard. And never beat it until I was an adult and making the nerd episode. You've done a lot better on that game than I have. I don't think I've still made it past oh, yeah. the first level. All <laughs> years later. Yeah, it's really tough. What about, you know, when you used to um, get games as a kid then? Was it like a local game shop that you used to go to to get your games? Yeah, there was um, there was a lot of them. Um, trying to think of what was the most common. I mean, we had Funko Land. A lot of them were uh, toy stores, like... Uh, KB's and Kitty City, Toys R Us, like bigger chains. Mm. But there were small ones. Well, I remember uh, a lot of games would get resold. So if you were 
in the 16-bit era, if you were buying some 8-bit games that have some small, like, computer stores that were, like, just reselling old stuff. And then you could trade stuff into. So I remember various places. And did you uh, trade much in, or because obviously you're quite famous for keeping a lot of your stuff, did you ever trade anything in, or was it always just a case of getting your pocket money, getting your allowance, and just buying new games? Uh, yeah, I, I did trade in a lot of games mm. around the time, uh, I think around the time N64 came out. Yeah, I traded in a lot of the old ones or sold them for like a few dollars or whatever. It wasn't very much that you mm. could get for them, like maybe 10 bucks or something like that at most. Because all the old the old NES games, I didn't think that people would still be playing them or talking about them. But then I regret later selling a lot of them. I, I did keep a lot too, though. Like a lot of the games I own, there's probably a handful of them that are still my childhood games. But but I did sell quite a bit too. I was going to ask that actually. Whether you know your collection now, was there ever a stage where you um, kind of got out of? retro gaming and then just started to, you know, buy everything back again, which I think yeah. I'm definitely guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it was around when I started the nerd episodes. I uh, started collecting again. You know, I started getting nostalgic for that stuff around that time. I kind of had, like, a little corner, which was, like, my NES area, just, like, one little corner, and um, now it's a whole room, so. <laughs> <laughs> was the one thing that kind of... Instigate you kind of starting collecting again was the one item. I can't remember if it was one item. I think it it might have started with the games I liked, but for the episodes it was all about you know the games that uh, the games you don't want to remember, the ones that were terrible. <laughs> um, but that made them you know fun on a whole new level to be able to share it with people and have a good laugh. And I think Jen, you're often to blame for these you know, awful games, suddenly selling for so much money on eBay. (laughs) I've been told that a lot, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just going back to the kind of Genesis and Mega Drive, how did you feel when the Genesis came along? Did did it feel like a challenge to the Nintendo, like a big challenge to the Nintendo's leadership? Because obviously you were a big Nintendo fanboy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was was definitely like, um, you know, it had the really aggressive commercials where they make Mm. fun of Nintendo and everything, Mm. uh, which was hilarious. They had a uh, – there was a documentary that came out recently that was really good. I forget the t- – Console Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. That that sums it up best. But um, I, I remember the commercials and um, kind of being a little bit uh, like, like tempted or like, oh, I want to I get a Genesis now. And uh, I, I ended up just waiting for the Super Nintendo, but my next-door neighbors had the Genesis, so we used to um, go over each other's houses and play each other's games. So we had, like, the best of both worlds. But it was funny. It was like, a you know, at school, like, it was a, like a friendly competition sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're a Sega kid. I'm a Nintendo kid, you know. Like, oh, Genesis is better. Like, oh, yeah, well, wait till you see the Super Nintendo. That's going to be better than Genesis. <laughs> my my, uh, my friend's dad's brother's got one. And <laughs> I've played it. That's usually what we have on the playground. Then, then PlayStation yeah. came along. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone at my school had, like, a, a distant cousin who owned a Neo Geo, but no one ever saw one. That was, like, the oh, mythical yeah. system. Was <laughs> it was very mystical. It was, uh, uh, or mythical, yeah, which... Whichever, whichever it was, he said. But, um, yeah, I didn't know anybody who had it, but I did always hear of somebody who knew somebody who claimed to have had it, and it was the most expensive console known at the time. Mm. And um, it had to be the best, right? It had to be. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. 
And um, it was just like what rich Japanese kids had, really, wasn't it? From what I heard. Yeah, I don't know if it was circulated a lot around the mm. states. I, I don't, I don't remember because I, I never seen one in person until adulthood. Mm. And um, you know, now I own one. Yeah, it's interesting because it really is kind of just like a home arcade sort of. Yeah. Yeah. The cartridges are as big as the bulbs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So far, the only games I really played on it are fighting games. Mm, that, I don't know if that's yeah, yeah. It, it's the same in the UK. We it, it was once again people heard of it, but it, nobody ever saw it. I didn't see one until you know early twenties. Um, you know, and I think it was literally the episode. I can't remember what episode it is, but where in the starting you have the the cartridge and you weigh it in the intro of one of the earlier episodes and it was like what's that what's that and I had to look it up and it was like oh it's the Neo Geo I remember hearing about that I'd never seen (laughs) (laughs) that's funny a lot of people would ask me like do those really weigh 60 pounds like no I was pushing on it (laughs) (laughs) I did your video that you did on um, because you've done a few videos on that kind of weird era you know kind of after Genesis and Super Nintendo and then we we had stuff like the, the Atari Jaguar yeah, and 3DO and the Amiga CD32. I know you've done videos on all of those systems. How did you kind of feel about them, you know, when you were a kid? Did you see much of them around, or is this stuff that you kind of discovered in hindsight, these kind of, you know, flopped systems? Some of them I heard about at the time, and others I didn't. Like the Philips CDI, I never heard of that one until later. But uh, I did hear of the uh, the real 3DO, the Panasonic 3DO. So when, uh, when the Sony PlayStation came along, I thought it would just be another one of those. So that's why I, I didn't really expect the PlayStation to, to be such a big deal because I was saving up for the N64. And uh, I had a friend who had a PlayStation, and uh, it looked great, but I had a, a long way uh, to go uh, to wait for the N64. And it seemed like in that delay, um, I might have, might as well have gotten the PlayStation at the time, but that's just how it was. If you remember the N64, it was delayed by, you know, it probably in hindsight was only like 18 months, but as a kid it felt like years. It did. You know, <laughs> waiting for that machine to come out. Yeah, like it probably wasn't actually as long, but it, it felt that way. But uh, I just remember waiting for that when it was called the Ultra 64. Mm. And um, the launch title I was most excited for was Killer Instinct, but that didn't become a launch title by the time it came out. They had Killer Instinct Gold, the sequel. Uh, I think by that point PlayStation had already uh, – got enough traction and took over. Yeah, in hindsight, I, I, that's just how I sort of missed the whole uh, PlayStation thing. I mean, I played some of it. I played some of the first couple Resident Evils when they came out. I played Twisted Metal, um, but I didn't play uh, Metal Gear Solid or Final Fantasy VII. Uh, the games, that, like the major games that you hear about, just went over my head. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I was um, shortly after the N64 um, I was busy with college and just didn't really play games as often. Well, then, then I started playing them a little more often because I had friends in college, but we would play, uh, like, we would play GameCube yeah. when that came out. Uh, usually more co-op or, or competitive games like one of the Bond games, uh, Nightfire. More like party games we would play. Yeah, yeah drinking games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because you know that whole era as well when, you know, everything went kind of 3D. That was, you know, every game had to be made into 3D from, like, 1995 onwards. 
What did you feel about that at the time then? Did you kind of think it was, you know, were you impressed and thought this is going to be the future of gaming? Or, uh, I know a lot, of, a lot of games didn't really do that transition all that well, did they? I mean, famously stuff like, you know, Bubsy 3D and you know, stuff oh, yeah. <laughs> tried to be forced into 3D that was terrible. But what did you think of it when you saw 3D gaming? Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking back, there's a lot of crap, I guess. But, but when I, uh, at, at the time, I remember, uh, I remember Mario 64 feeling really cool. Like, that was really awesome that you could run in a circle and it felt smooth. The joystick on the controller was, you know, was, was responsive and it felt, yeah, it felt like the future. So I, I think I was impressed at the time. But I I, uh, I guess fortunately I skipped over Bubsy and a lot of those types of games. You got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, you know, over the years you've accumulated a huge gaming collection. Are there any highlights or rare items that you're most proud of in the collection now? You know, off the top of my head, uh, the original Magnavox Odyssey. Mm. Uh, I have it in the box and everything. Every piece is in there. Like, even the factory batteries are in oh, there. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so that one's – like, I don't know how hard that is to find, but it, I just know that having that, it's like the the original game console, yeah. like the first yeah. one ever. So, yeah. And obviously now that you do this, you know, for a living – are you still like an, an avid collector, or do you kind of have to do some separation between kind of your work life and personal life? Oh, um, I I still collect a little bit, not as much because um, you know the room's full, and uh, most of the games I was ever looking for I have now. Hmm. And um, the only reason now where I would get something else is to is if it's a specific game needed for an episode. So I kind of just treated on a case-by-case basis, just what do I need for the videos. So, speaking of videos, you were a big home movie maker as a kid. How did you get started, and what really ignited that flame? Because, of you know, you've, you've posted over the years so many things from such a young age with, you know, with the cam- home cameras and stuff. Yeah, um, I think by accident, I think from just being bored or from just messing around, it was always in the arts. I think it didn't really matter too much what it was. It's just that I had to do something in the arts and entertainment. Mm. So I would draw, I would uh, paint, I would do stuff like that. Then I started, I came to a crossroads where I could go film or animation. And I decided to go film because I found live action was a little bit uh, more more tangible. It was, it was uh, I enjoyed being around people, I guess, more. The animation, um, I felt like I could do anything with it because animation, the, the possibilities are limitless, but it felt too time-consuming, too many long, lonely hours just drawing. And, you know, I, I guess I found film a little more exciting as I get outside and, you know, play with my friends. And, and that's what we would do. My friends would come over. We'd make a movie in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes these movies would just come about spontaneously on a weekend and they're not much to look at now, but they were instrumental in getting that sort of practice needed to think fast and, like, figure out what kind of shots you need to put it together and make some kind of story that sort of makes sense enough, you know. So, yeah, that, that's where it all started. What kind of setup did you have? I mean, I imagine obviously you started with a video camera, but did you kind of uh, – do you remember what camera it was, and did you expand to, like um, – VHS editing systems or Genlocks, that kind of thing? How far did you go with it? They were uh, on VHS-C. It was a compact size VHS. I think it was a JVC camera. It was my parents' camera. 
and then I just sort of, you know, would keep borrowing it, and eventually it became mine. And then I got another one. I got a, a for Christmas. I got a full size VHS camera, and that was cool because it could shoot longer. I could shoot up to two hours on a tape, which yeah. now is kind of funny to think like, why did I need two hours? But um, the editing was only done on two VCRs, and I would make subtle advances throughout the years. I would find a way to do audio dubbing and stuff like that. I went to some uh, summer and Saturday courses at a university where they had uh, proper editing equipment, but it was analog. It was, uh, mm. you know, just a step up from the VCRs. But I, you know, didn't get a lot of time on that. It was sort of, you know, because you'd be competing with every other student in the class to, you know, to sit down on the machines and edit. But I always wanted my own and uh, never did, never actually got those. Way too expensive and didn't even know where to get them. But I ended up just making it work with my two VCRs and got a pretty good VCR that had a flying erase head, they called it, where it had a clean edit. When you hit record, it doesn't have all the the fuzz, all the static. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then uh, finally computers came along, but it was a really slow transition. Uh, I didn't have my own computer that was capable of editing until uh, much later, uh, well into my college years. And it's crazy to think now, you know, how how quickly we can do something in, like, Final Cut or Premiere or something like that. The yeah. process of doing that VHS to VHS, you know, I don't know how we actually found the effort to do that because it was just so much hassle, wasn't it? It was. It was crazy. Uh, just to think that even to add a title, I actually bought a, um, or I got it for Christmas uh, or whatever, it was a title maker. It was a separate piece of hardware that was just to make titles. You would have to play it in real time. And then you have a title loaded up and you'd fade it in and out. But you'd have to do it while the tape was copying to the other tape. Crazy. And now you could make a title so easily. Yeah, and if you timed it wrong, you messed the whole thing up. Yeah, you had to go back. <laughs> Editing in order, yeah. Oh, God. Oh. You imagine trying to make an AVGN episode on VHS. Uh, <laughs> that, that could be an interesting idea for you one day. That, that could. Be a fun episode. It could, yeah. <laughs> It'd be a good challenge to, to go back to it. That that'd be that would really be a trip because <laughs> those were, oh, man, like looking back, that was a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was either that or don't do it at all. So I guess you know, it, yeah. that was the only That's way. <laughs> well, let's get on to, you know, your most famous character then. Um, where did the idea of AVGN come from then? Because, we, like, like we said before, you were very early to this kind of retro gaming thing. And I think actually at the time, it wasn't even really called retro gaming. It was more vintage gaming, I remember, was kind of the title it was given originally. Oh, yeah. Where did the idea come from to make these videos and the character? Um, it was really just an accident. It was just another fun thing to do. Um, I was just messing around. And um, I guess the ideas really came from college because uh, this was, like, right after college. But uh, during college was when it was the first time I ever heard from anybody who remembered those type of games. So every now and then when we weren't playing, you know, Bond, we would uh, get out one of the old games and just sort of play around. We'd sort of laugh and make fun of them a little bit. And uh, since I realized some people remembered them, I, I made – the episodes, but I really thought the episodes would only appeal to uh, my circle of friends. I didn't really think it would go that far. Mm. Um, in fact, YouTube didn't even come out yet, so there still wasn't any real way to circulate them. It, it was the same thing I'd always do. I'd just copy them on VHS tapes and hand them out to friends. 
And then when YouTube came out, I made another one, and it started getting some attention, and then I started doing more and more. And then it sort of became like a request basis, you know, oh, you got to do more, you got to do more. And since people were enjoying them, and I was enjoying them too, I just kept it going. And at which point did it kind of like hit you that this could kind of become a bit of a career? You know, what what point did you think, I'm going to stop working my mind till five and and do this full time because I think it was around 2007 that you ended up on Screw Attack on Game Trailers, you know, and I think that probably helped catapult the popularity of the nerd. What's the kind of story there? What what was the transition like? Yeah, so at that time I had been I'd been doing them on YouTube for about a year, mm. and then um, never would have thought that you can get money for that. Um, mm. The Game Trailers contract was the first time I I was paid to do a the episodes where they would debut on game trailers b- before they'd go on YouTube. And, um, yeah, that was really the start of it. I was still working uh, another job at the time. At that time, I was working a wedding job. I was I was a videographer oh, yeah. editing yeah, uh, editing weddings. And uh, sometime in 2008, I think I started doing them less. And eventually, uh, you know, the nerd videos and the DVDs were able to make it so that I can do that uh, Full time. Was that a nervous transition, that, you know, leaving your job and kind of relying on that? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. Especially uh, being self employed, uh, not having health benefits anymore. Um, it, was, it was risking everything, yeah. And was that around the time the nerd went weekly for a while, didn't it, on, on game trailers and stuff? What, what was that like? Was it stressful? Uh, yeah, it was uh, bi weekly, so it was like yeah. two a month. Yeah, two a month. Uh, Oh yeah, it was it was really stressful because I was doing that and I was doing other videos at the same time. There was I was also doing uh, I think that you know it's bullshit videos. There was uh, Monster, Monster Madness. Madness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, movie reviews on Spike. Uh, eventually, Board James for a little while. Like there was all these different shows, but yeah, it was uh, it was like two a month. I remember uh, being really sick for like a, a large portion of uh, 2008 like I was like sick for months and months and months straight my voice would come and go because I wasn't sleeping much so I wouldn't want to go back to doing it that way it was too much I I remember you know a lot of people saying when you when you're self-employed you get to make your own hours I'm like well that's great but what happens when you make all your hours (laughs) (laughs) yeah you need some separation Yeah. yeah yeah Well, obviously, AVGN, I mean, it's gone on to be, you know, a cultural phenomenon, you know. Um, if you talk about any anyone to do with YouTube and video games, your name generally always comes up. And uh, you made the transition to your own movie as well, for the AVGN movie. Yeah. What were the challenges of adapting a character from, you know, a YouTube short series, you know, short episodes, mm-hmm. to a full feature-length movie on the big screen? The first thought was that it would be sort of like a Revenge of the Nerds, really like, dumb comedy sort of thing. Um, and we kept the dumb comedy, like, you know, to make it, like, just really just stupid and funny, you know? <laughs> like a movie that doesn't take itself seriously. But the plot got a lot more complicated because uh, then we started going the, uh, like, a National Treasure Da Vinci Code route and, um, like, sort of, like, uncovering these conspiracies with the E.T. game. Yeah, I got really, really sucked into the story, like, really... uh went deep with it uh it was it was a lot of fun to write it was you know just a lot of fun all around 
and you've got people like, you know, how Scott Warshaw was involved in it as well, another guy, we've had him on this podcast actually, another guy behind E.T. Oh, great, yeah. Is that like working with him then, and how did you get him involved with it? Oh, he was awesome. Yeah, um, well, we wrote the, the script, and we had him in mind, because he's kind of similar to um, Leonardo da Vinci and the Da Vinci Code, where he would put hidden things in the, uh, you know, in his work, because he would put his initials, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like in Yars Revenge, you could find his initials. So we thought, well, what if he made E.T. as a uh, floor plan of Area 51, or you can decode it and find the location of the uh, the captive alien, the real alien in Area 51. Um, so we went really far with the story, and I, I remember I wanted to have a really good script to show him. Um, so we waited until we had everything written out. But then as the time got closer, I remember getting more and more nervous, like, oh, what if he doesn't like it? Because we put all this work into it. Um, so we uh, we showed it to him, and, and you know, he liked it, but um, he wanted to scale back the character a bit. So he was originally going to play, like, the Xander character, mm-hmm. but he ended up taking more of, like, a, uh, like a mentor sort of role in there, and it worked out better for the long run. And uh, having him on set was, was amazing. Like, it was really uh, – really kind guy and uh just having him there and the fans there at the same time like just to come out into this random spot in the desert to watch me and howard you know act and say our lines it was really just a like a magical moment you know i can't i can't even describe it to do it justice I also think it must be quite surreal for him as well, you know, the fact that he's kind of taken it under his wing, this, um, you know, I killed the video games industry kind of thing, hasn't he? He, he takes it in his stride, but it must be weird for him, I imagine, seeing all these documentaries made about, you know, and movies being made about his, uh, you know, biggest failure in his career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, his, his book, uh, Once Upon Atari, yeah. is really great. It, it goes into all that. So would you want to make another movie? Because I know you're incredibly busy when you're making a red movie and doing everything else at the same time as well. Oh, yeah. Um, it depends, because uh, you're not asking a nerd sequel. You're just saying another movie, it's right? Just a movie in general, yeah. I mean, a nerd sequel would be awesome, but just a movie. Oh, yeah, movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no on the nerd sequel, because um, I want to make something different, but uh, definitely uh, something different. I've done a short film. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a short film, uh, The Head Returns, which was a sequel to The Head Incident from 99. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like, you know, sort of did the, uh, the Halloween H2O sort of thing. Like I went back yeah. to the, <laughs> the story, which was fun. So I, but I, I found that I really loved doing short films. Uh, I, I think I might like them more than features mm-hmm. because it's more like a shorter uh, Twilight Zone type format. I think it's more condensed because I wrote a feature horror film. To be realistic, it's going to take years and years to film. I mean, it's not as complicated as the nerd movie, but still, it's uh, it's going to uh, uh, it's going to take over my life for yeah. years and years. And once you start a movie, then you're you're past the point of no return. Like now, mm-hmm. you just keep on going and going and going until it's finished. And during that time, that's like almost all you're doing is just that movie and all you're thinking about. And like, I don't want that right now. I'd rather have something yeah. that I could uh, could make it quicker and you know not not have it overstay its welcome and i think that the the horror feature i rewrote it as a short and i think it's better as a short like as a 30 minute film something like that is that the uh, the roller coaster in the castle yeah it is it's the the abandoned amusement park yeah 
so I think I'm I'm planning to make it as a short. Mm. Once I'm caught up with, uh, you know, some other, because I have some other videos I'm trying to make too. There's some other like secret projects I'm working on. So uh, it's 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 in the queue. It'll happen, but you had to wait for you know COVID to get under control mm. and being able to get out in the world more and things need to be a little more stable, you know, before I make such a big decision to a life-changing, you know, uh, project. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, talking about your um, your videos from ABGN, Jack Tramiel passed away a few years ago. Did you ever oh, hear yes. the, the rumor you were talking about about Sword Quest was true then, that he had the treasures? I haven't heard a single thing, no. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's been a while since his death, yeah. Mm. Obviously, when at first, when he first died, I wasn't going to be like, oh, well, let's find the treasure, you know, but... but uh, <laughs> the premise of the second AVGN film. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, so much time has passed, and uh, I, I haven't heard anything at all. You'd you think maybe, like, someone somewhere would have, uh, you know, found something, but I, I guess that was all... I mean, I heard that the treasures were all melted down, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Like, they were... All the uh, the gold was sent back to the mint, and uh, I, that's all there was. Not a very uh, exciting um, treasure adventure story, but <laughs> having a miss of them still being out there somewhere, yeah, that makes it much more exciting, I think. Yeah, yeah, we we could go with that. That they're just they're still out there, they're still out there waiting to be found. Yeah. So, um, what's the typical process of making a nerd episode, and has that changed much over the last fifteen years? Um, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, so it, you know, starts with the gameplay. Uh, I sit down, play the game, write some notes, basically write all the parts that are frustrating or funny or, or anything interesting whatsoever. And then as I'm doing that, I'm recording the gameplay and then I digest all the footage and start going through it and writing a script. The script, you know, is probably the, the longest part because because just going through the notes and trying to figure out, like, well, what kind of flow is this? Like, should I start talking about this and then go on to that? Is this funny? Is that fu- funny? Like, um, once I got it all down, then then I shoot it, then it goes to editing. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of help with the editing, over, especially in the past, like, five years or so. Yeah. I still do a, do some of the editing. It's not all outsourced, I guess I should say, but uh, still a lot of it is me editing. Um, I have a lot of people help edit as well, and um, while they're editing, that means that I can start writing the next one. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of how the the flow goes. It, it's a much, it's the most efficient that I've ever had in the whole you know career, and it keeps me from keeps me able to do the creative parts where if there's something like because before you know I would get bogged down. Uh, working on the color correction, on little audio tweaks mm. and trying to clean up the, you know, the audio and get the volume all equalized and all that kind of stuff. It's so refreshing when someone else can take that off your plate and just <laughs> let you, you know, you know, work on the fun part. You know? <laughs> Sometimes you get a bit, you know, obsessed with it, can't you? Like, oh, just need to change it a little bit more or, yeah, you know, you can, before you know, you spend two hours doing the color correction and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And even then, sometimes I have a lot of notes about it where I'm like, oh, can you, can you, you know, make this part look a little more like nighttime or, you know. Um, yeah. The last one I had uh, on the last Ninja, the most recent yeah. episode, there were parts where the color correction was meant to look bad on purpose um, mm. because I was recreating a, an old episode, like the, the look and feel of an old episode from 2006. I was going to say, you captured the room. 
the background really well then. <laughs> with, with oh, yeah. Because it did. And I, I, I mean, I'm glad you cleared that up for me. I, I, I was really studying it, like, <laughs> Did you film this 15 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really could. Some planning is done. Yeah, I was going to say, that's some planning, that is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was a fun challenge. Just try to make it look as close as possible. Mm. I used the exact same microphones that I used back then. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it was, I just wanted to see how far I could go with it. That's some dedication. And uh, was there any abandoned episodes, like any episodes you just couldn't make, make work? The only ones I remember, I, I think we released as DVD bonus mm. uh, episodes. I think one was Secret Scout. That's mm. the only one I can remember off the top of my head. Um, I don't think we ever, like, finished it. It was kind of just like like a game that my friend Mike and I would play, and we just recorded it, and we were like, okay, this could maybe be an episode. Because mm. I have, uh, you know, my friends help me a lot with yeah. – uh, uh, picking out games like you know, Michael suggested it. He suggested Last Ninja to me. He was like, "Hey, this game's really bad. You should check it out." And I, I did, and it was like, "Oh wow, you're not kidding. This game is might be the worst NES game I've ever played." Did you ever get any um, bad games for like Christmas or birthday as a kid? You know, I think I lucked out with a lot of that. I think m- the worst game I can recall off the top of my head was Ghostbusters on NES. It's just because it was Ghostbusters, everyone had to have it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it was one of those where usually the movie games weren't uh, weren't so good. What are some of your personal favorite nerd episodes? In recent memory, like I'll go recent, I'll go classic. Mm. I think uh, recent um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas mm. and uh, Majora's Mask. Yeah, um, those were two really big ones because they were a, a little more story driven and mm. and there was like some you know sort of like sentimental content to both of those like there was like like some you know some sort of part where i'm really even though it's like a joke and it's like a you know it's just sort of like a just meant to be a funny video it it also has some some genuine material in in those yeah and then like the the older ones i remember rob the robot i think is probably my favorite uh, old one because it had a story to it Mm. and uh I remember the Crazy Castle one, as far as slapstick goes, yeah. was well, that's a hard one to beat. Oh, well, well and, uh, the Sega Activator one with uh, with, with Nathan Barnett, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's always fun to break a lot of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say birthday blowout as well. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Plumbers don't wear ties. I think was uh, cause I've never really seen that game before. And oh yeah, a very eye opening <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah, I remember that episode. At the time I was making it, I wasn't so sure if it was a good episode or not because I didn't really have much to add to the game. Like my commentary on it was just like, you know, look at this because what do you say about this? Look at this insane, crazy game. But I guess it's just. Just that, like, just that the game sort of wrote the episode itself. It, it was, like, that's all you need. Because people would always tell me that they love that episode, so I, I think that's maybe what it is. It's just that because the game was so crazy and it's and the fact that I have such a lack of words for it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it speaks for itself a bit. Yeah. You know, your Majora's Mask one as well, that was interesting because I remember, mm-hmm. you know, when you released that episode, I remember thinking, oh, he's going to get it for, you know, slate in that game. <laughs> and then I watched it. And actually, you made a load of good points in there, and I think a lot of people in the comments were like, actually, now you mention it, you know, you're right about a lot of stuff in there. Was that kind of an episode, did you feel a bit, you know, doing a, a nerd episode kind of putting down a Zelda game? Was that a bit kind of a... 
outrageous in some ways, do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that that's always what made them, uh, you know, what I think made the episodes interesting. Like, going all the way back to Ninja Turtles, that game was the number one top-voted uh, game in uh, Nintendo Power for a while, I think, for maybe a year or so. I don't know. And uh, I was one of the first people, I think, publicly to bring up all the bad points about it um, to that level. I even remember uh, um, Zelda Zelda 2, actually. That kind of seems like, you know, some people like it, some people don't. Um, so it's always good to bring about good and bad points. It's interesting because Majora's Mask, when I saw that, it's like my favorite Zelda game and I adore Zelda. And it's interesting because when I watched that video and I first saw you kind of like obviously joking but bashing on it, it actually mm-hmm. brought back memories because I think I was about 12 or 13 when that game came out. And I actually remember getting upset that it had the time limit on it before I understood how the time limit worked and that you could, you know, revert, you know, go back to the start and stuff. And I remember my mum saying, how is it, like, on Christmas Day? And I remember, like, holding back tears. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's great. (laughs) But, you know, at the time, I didn't understand the mechanics. So, you know, it's, it's great that you kind of pointed it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, cause it, was, it was actually my first time playing it all the way through. Mm. Um, I played a little bit before, but not enough to get a sense of the game. So it, it was really like a bucket list game for me because I heard a lot about it before I played it, and I heard good and bad things. Like, I've heard a lot of people say it was their favorite Zelda game. Yeah. And then I've also heard a lot of people say, like, well, you know, it, it's interesting. It's it's different. It's definitely different. Mm. And I was like, well, I need I need to, you know, see this for myself and I really love the aesthetic of it with the yeah. moon and everything so it even appealed to me already before like it already looked like a game like I know I'm going to enjoy this and I'm sure there's going to be things about it that are going to frustrate me but overall I think this is going to be a a good experience yeah so one of the questions I had to ask because I've always wondered this you've had some huge guests on AVGM Lloyd Kaufman Macaulay Culkin Gilbert Gottfried how did this happen? How did that come about? What's the story there? Like, the Macaulay Culkin one blows my mind. Um, each one uh, was a different case. The, the the way we went about meeting them was, was different each time. Um, Macaulay Culkin was one that came to me, so oh, that wow. was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Gilbert, we went to Gilbert. Um, we we had access to him, so we, we asked him if he wanted to do it, and he did it. Uh, Lloyd, we, we've... Uh, I think, wait, did we do the movie cameo before that? Or, or I think we shot the movie cameo first. Now I'm starting to forget. Mm-hmm. Macaulay Culkin, though, was a fan. And he was a mm-hmm. fan for a while, too. And, uh, you know, one day the idea came up, like, if we do a, a Home Alone episode. And at first I felt like, well, like, is he into this? Like, is he, or is he kind of tired of hearing about Home Alone all the time? Like, I wasn't sure. Um, and it does seem like it's a rare case when he does something. So I felt really honored that he yeah. wanted to come here and, uh, you know, go as far to reenact the trap scene and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't know. I was like, hey, is this too cliche or whatever? And he's like, no, no, no. Like, he he really uh, enjoyed being in the episode. And, and a lot of the, the dialogue in it, uh, we ad-libbed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you hang out with him for a couple of days? Because you did a um, James and Mike Monday with him as well, didn't you, with the page master and stuff? Like, or, was it, or just he came for the day? Oh, we did, yeah. Uh, it was a few days, yeah. Um, we did the the page master and then the rental review, but yeah, no. It, being out in public with them was really fun because 
just to see how uh, what it's like when someone approaches him. Yeah, uh, they'll come. They'll recognize him and they'll say like, "Hey, are are you, are are you?" And he goes, "Jonathan Taylor Thomas." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like just to see how he jokes around and messes with people yeah. like that. It's so funny. It's totally a different, you know, kind of style uh, to just you know make, make a funny joke. You know. Yeah. Yeah, he seemed a really down-to-earth guy as well, and uh, you could tell he was having so much fun when you when you did the episode with him, so it was nice to see that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But obviously you've done a lot of spin-off shows. You mentioned, you know, Board James and, you know, what's BS, rental reviews. Have you got any plans to do anything else you can talk about then or anything that's coming up on the channel that we should look out for that you can mention? Well, I, I'm looking forward to getting on a plane and going somewhere at some point. <laughs> um, I haven't been, uh, haven't been on a plane in, like, two years. Uh, I actually am finally going to do a family trip, though, soon. So that'll be my oh. first, uh, take the children. But some of uh, there's certain projects that I want to do that involve flying, and hopefully I'll be able to do that soon. They're also, like, expensive, you know. Sometimes yeah. it's like flying is expensive and, and everything added to it. Uh, but I have some on-location videos I want to do, videos that won't ever make uh, revenue back, like, you know, they won't um, reimburse themselves, but still, it's like the point of doing it is just for fun. Like, I, I want to do it just because I want to do it. Um, so hopefully some of those will happen soon. There's a, you know, I'm working on recording a, a music album of cover songs. That with Rex Lipa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're doing that. Got a bunch of stuff going on. Um, just juggling a bunch of things, but I'm just enjoying it. Just, uh, you know, one day I'm working on one thing, and then the next day I'm working on something else. I just, I just love doing it all, especially you know, the, the way like you know the past couple of years have been. It's just not been normal, you know. So it's yeah. any type of escape, any type of entertainment, it's different now. It's like now it's you trying to do this type of thing to get your mind off and get other people's minds off of uh, you know bad stuff in the world. And yeah, so it's like I, I think I enjoy this more than ever now. Yeah, 100%. Well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure coming on. Thank you so much for uh, reminiscing with us and uh, being so open and chatting about your channel. And everything. It's been incredible talking to you, so thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks so much. Coming up on this week's show, Atari are making 2600 games again. A new series of Games Master has arrived and we give our review. And we get the secret history of Mac Gaming with author Richard Moss. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our mates at Bitmap Books. Now, if you enjoyed this week's interview on the secret history of Mac Gaming, order the book and find out how the Mac changed gaming and spawned some of the biggest franchises in the industry. At 480 pages long, it interviews over 80 legends of Mac Gaming. Order your copy right now at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And by our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a project at the moment, check them out. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer lots of other services too, including 3D printing and injection molding. Plus, they're massive supporters of the retro community. So you can get an instant quote for your project right now on their website at PCBWay.com. Hello 
and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 303, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show. The nights are getting darker here in the UK now. It is our final show of November. Have you boys been festive yet? I'm getting there. I've been to my first festive market and I've about done my, my Christmas shopping as well. Just just got Ravi to buy for now. I've got to buy presents. I've been like looking around and I've been seeing trees and I've been thinking, shall I get one? Shall I get one? And like, is there, is there an official time that you do? I know you guys are ridiculously early, but like, is there an official time that you get a tree? Like, usually I think, oh, December. <laughs> I think there is. I can't. I think there is like a. I know you have to take it down before New Year, is it, or so many days after New Year? January 6th normally, I think, isn't it? Yeah, January 6th, there we go. I'm not too sure about putting it up, but I know last year, a lot of people put it up in November because of COVID and lockdown in the UK and stuff like that. But, you know, in terms of video games and our history, Christmas is always a magical time. I mean, you know, those, those memories are sitting there by the Christmas tree with your new console or your new computer. Hooked up to the big telly, you'll get to do that around Christmas as well when you're a kid, didn't you? And uh, playing your latest games, that was all so much fun. And now we're kind of into this time of year. I mean, we're getting ready for a benchmark on the Retro Hour annual calendar, and that is the Christmas Super Quiz, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. This is where we completely break the normal format of the show. We get on a few guests, and uh, you boys, you actually need to defend your title this year, Joe, of being the reigning quiz champion, because you won it last year, didn't you? It's too much pressure. I, You know what? Not to, you know, blow my own trumpet, but I actually won the year before as well. So I'm actually two years... Well, I was on your team then. You were on my team, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I am two-year reigning champion. Yeah, um, I think we'll balance each other out because you're with the biggest <laughs> loser. <laughs> I am. I'm partnered up with uh, my boy Ravi this year. Um, yeah. But I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it it's the taking part that counts. <laughs> um, and RMC, Neil from RMC. I think I got him by like one or two points last year. It was tight, so I'm, I'm not feeling that confident this year. <laughs> well, Neil's going to come back and try and challenge you. He's going to be joined by uh, Mark from Mark Sixes still, so they're going to be a team. We're doing teams again this year. And we're going to have Paul Drury from uh, Retro Gamer Magazine, Oliver Wilmot, who um, used to be on the quiz with us a couple of years ago. He's coming back as well. That's going to be such a giggle. Um, hopefully, we're going to be doing a video version of that for our patrons as well. Uh, but obviously, everyone's going to get that Christmas special um, a couple of weeks before Christmas. So um, that's coming up very soon as well. Always a highlight of the year for me. I really enjoy doing that. And another memory I've got of this time of year, for some reason, watching Games Master, to me it always felt like, you know, something that reminds me of the autumn when I was a kid, you know, like November evenings, around friends' houses, watching that on, on Channel 4 back in the day. And I got to relive that experience this week because the new series of Games Master has finally arrived. And we're going to give our little uh, review on that in just a moment. And lots of other stories to talk about, but um, I'll just say... Thumbs up from me. We'll talk more about that in a second. And we're going to be joined by a special guest. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about um, Mac gaming. And I can already hear people around you saying, well, the Mac's not a gaming platform. Oh, oh, yes, it is. There were, there were some good titles on there. And, you know, we've had so many developers that have talked about, like, the Apple II that was, you know, one of their first kind of gaming experiences. And uh, mm. that, that was a really interesting platform. But also the Macintosh, and there's some... There was some resistance from Apple, which was really interesting. And, you know, they never really wanted it to be kind of a gaming platform. You have to look at stuff like the Pippin. <laughs> you realise that. But um, today we're, we're talking to Richard Moss, and he's actually created 
a book all about the history of gaming on Apple. Yeah, well, specifically the Mac. Because, I mean, you're right, really the Mac, it's generally regarded as kind of, you know, the, the creative machine, isn't it? You know, it's not really, most people don't think of video games when it comes to the Mac. But there is, I mean, a lot of games really, I mean, you know, started life on that platform. For example, you know, Halo, Myst as well, which obviously was uh, both games that I think define their genres. Both started on the, on the Mac back in the day as well. And some of the games on there, I mean, I remember... You're using an Amiga fan as well, Ravi. Do you ever emulate a Mac on your Amiga? Every, every time, because, because the version of SimCity 2000 was utterly yeah. pants on the Amiga. <laughs> and that was a killer title. Like, the Sims titles, uh, you know, simulation stuff on the Mac were really good. But also, you're forgetting about, um, like, Seventh Guest and the whole yeah. FMV kind of period that came after Mist as well. They had a lot of FMV adventures and... It was really at the forefront of that kind of CD-ROM thing. I remember some of the first CD-ROM games that I saw coming out were Mac releases. And, um, yeah, I remember playing Prince of Persia on the Mac emulator because it, you know, way better than the, the Amiga and the DOS version. You know, the graphics were incredible. So if you ever thought the Mac wasn't, you know, it's not a gaming platform, I think we're going to change your mind this week with the author of this incredible new book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, Richard Moss, is going to be our special guest in around 25 minutes from now. Well, let's talk about it then. The new series of Games Master, it is finally here. And I don't know about you guys, because when we learned it was going to drop this weekend, particularly, I mean, I, mean, I imagine Ravi and I probably more than you, Joe, because I know you weren't much of a viewer of the original series, but I felt like a kid counting down to Christmas. I was so excited for it. And actually, it got released on YouTube right at the start of our patrons' hangout on Sunday. So we had to wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made a little joke about how everybody was just going to jump off the hangout to go watch it. Um, I caught it today, yeah. um, so it's, it's quite fresh for me. Um, but like you say, you know, you, you message me saying, make sure you watch it, Joe, because it would be good to get your opinion because you didn't watch it as a child. You know, you're not too familiar with it. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. I'll give it a thumbs up. It, it, it was weird because it was like, it was starting and I was like watching it and I was like, I've not really got any nostalgia for this, but I can imagine so many people like sitting there watching it like it's that like, that moment, like, in the cinema when you watch the new big film of, like, you get goosebumps. I could imagine... I imagine some people felt that way. Like I'm not, I'm not going to lie. When, when the intro came on and the, and the music came, I was, like, goosebumps all over. <laughs> I, was, I was 11 years old again, yeah. So, seriously. so you guys tell me. So was the music and the intro and stuff, was that... It, it was new. It was okay, new, new, but, like, it had the same vibes. And oh, Okay. I'd say the attitude of the Games Master was exactly the same. Like, yeah. the thing about Games Master was, it wasn't amazing and a thrill ride for the whole time. You know, there were, there were boring sections in it. There were, there were quite nerdy sections. And, and I think it stood up compared to a lot of TV that you see, especially on E4 and stuff like that mm. at the moment. I think it was entertaining and that's, that's the key kind of thing for me. Um, it was always about cutting-edge games as well, because I've seen a lot of people say, oh, they didn't play any retro titles in there. But every time I watched Games Master when I was a kid, it was because I wanted to see the later stuff that, like, wasn't released. And, and I was a bit surprised that they went back a bit and they played, like, Beat Saber and Splatoon, which is kind of a bit old, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I would have loved to see, like, the maddest kind of latest VR stuff. And maybe they'll get onto that, because there has been, like a break for <laughs> quite a few years, so they've got to catch up with a lot of stuff, really. 
I think, you know, because you and I watched it as kids, Ravi, and we've got a big international audience as well, which is why I thought Joe's perspective was quite good, because, yeah, well, yeah. you know, a big chunk of our audience who never watched the original version, and maybe, you can watch them all on YouTube, but, you know, you're interested in the 90s series, you know, it was a big British gaming television show back in the day, but this, um, this reboot of it 23 years later, I've got to say, the intro music was pretty much identical to the original. Oh, was it? Um, slight remix, yeah, you know, a few extra drums and stuff near the end. The logo was the same logo that the 90 series had, which for me, when I saw that come up on screen, that to me was like, oh my God, it's back. I don't know how you feel, guys, about this, but I feel every TV show that I've watched after the pandemic, there's a kind of dryness about it where where there's like, you know, people obviously have to keep a distance, but also the audience, there's not as many as there was before, so it kind of feels like you're in a bit of an empty room. So when people are clapping and they're like, woo, it feels a bit kind of, soulless and stuff and that's not only with Games Master but I've seen that happen on so many other shows you know and they've got yeah. half the size of audience and it hasn't got that mad kind of roar that the old one had but uh, you know they did really well for filming in the kind of situation they are but I always think there's a little bit a little bit kind of missing in the, in the post-pandemic uh, television world yeah the audience was interesting because yeah the original you're right they probably had about 100, 200 kids there, didn't they? All screaming, but this time... My brother pointed this out. He said the audience is all middle-aged men. And, you know, and... and so main, more top geary. And, 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 yeah, yeah. and the main presenter did say, like, welcome to Games Master. And he's like, after 23 years, I'm sure, like, millions of middle-aged men are, <laughs> like, here to watch the show kind of thing. So that... It did make me laugh. Like, they, they're fully aware that, like, probably half their audience, maybe even more, you know, are, are from the original 90s show. The thing that got me was, like, I don't want to, like, rag on anybody, but the supposed Games Masters contestants, I wasn't I wasn't all too impressed with their skills, to be perfectly honest. Um, they were always terrible back in the day, though. The oh, okay. guess they got on were always awful. It was always the kids that beat them. And, and you know, when Big Boy Barry's son. So, uh, this is where I was a little bit confused as well. Were, yeah. Are they celebrities? Were the people competing celebrities? Like, I apparently so. I wasn't familiar with any of them. I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with well, any Well, either. also, they'd have this, like, they did it quite well with the choices because they'd have this, thing where they bring on like you know the gaming expert or the 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 like person that was the best at mortal combat and then like they'd line yeah. up people to fight against them so they kind of had that video um like gamers that were the big ones so that yeah. was the whole thing about big boy barry he was meant to be like really fantastic at uh, video yeah. games on Games World, so he'd be brought in as one of the characters in there. Got you. Obviously, trying to do that with a uh, little boy Larry, yeah, um, yeah, which is uh, his son, and yeah. they're going to turn that, them into like the video game pros that come yeah. in. I mean, he was the most impressive, the son, the little boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he wiped the His ball. attitude was amazing. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was the best. Um, and you know, and you know, the first guy they did the Super Mario thing, and they literally only went one wrong once. So. You know, yeah. The people, they have their own and stuff like that, but, yeah, I think it was good. I'll definitely stick with it and watch it. I'll be watching every single episode, no doubt. And I thought the girls that did Call of Duty, they were, you know, I'm nowhere near as good as Call of Duty, especially <laughs> on that mode. I'd have got my ass handed to me. I just, I, I felt like they could have picked better guns. That's all I'd say about that. <laughs> but then there's the two guys at Ketchup and Mustard, who I think were from Nottingham, if I'm right, where, where we record the show, who um, played... Mortal Kombat, and they were hyped up as like you know massive Mortal Kombat veterans, and yeah. they didn't even use like the um, 
it, half the moves in the game, and you get the fatal blows kept coming up, and they weren't using it. And it cost one of them around, which I was surprised at. I, I, I just loved um, Trevor McDonald, where he went, yeah. he went Jamaican, and he was like, Wagwan. What I will say about Ketchup and Mustard is, I am, I'm actually familiar with them too, funny enough. They, they have a channel called PNDKM. Uh, where right. they, they do, like, the entire competitive history of every single Mortal, Mortal Kombat game and every single Mortal Kombat character. And they've got, like, 130,000 subscribers. And what I will say about that is they actually, if you watch their channels, they say why you shouldn't use, like, the X-ray moves and stuff like that. That's all I'll say about mm-hmm. that. That's all I'll say about There was that. one moment, though, it was like, literally just about to... The, the energy was almost equal, but one of them had um, a fatal blow and he didn't use it, and he could have won it, but then, yeah. yeah. The thing is with Games Master... You always spoke to Dominic Diamond and Dave Perry about the original series, and often it would be like, right, let's do that game again, and we're going to sell three different versions, and, you know, cut it. maybe it was something like that. Maybe. Anyway, yeah, just maybe. trying to get the perfect take of it. But. Yeah, you, you watch it in a life bar. <laughs> 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 that didn't did happen in the original sometimes. Um, but I've got to say, yeah, Trevor McDonald, because you look at the older series, and Patrick Moore was the same. You know, generally someone who's regarded as very serious and everything will come out with just stupid lines or, you know, like Trevor did laugh when someone pretended to be a this and died and just coming out of random phrases. I thought he absolutely nailed it. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to hear what, what our listeners think about it as well. And, uh, you know, I've seen I've seen the overall kind of praise, but I, I can see if some people don't like it as well. You know, there's uh, a lot of people that hopefully will be introduced to the series as well. I've seen so many posts where people say, I've not seen the original Games Master, but I enjoyed this, which is, like, pretty good, actually, because it brings it to a whole new group of people, and they might they might be able to go back and look at the older shows as well, because they're all available online. And I've seen people watching it with the kids as well, you know, like my, my brother did with my nephew, you know, introduced him to Games Master, and, you know, he loved it. So um, it's just good to have gaming back on telly again. Don't you think? Even though Telly's dying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, mainstream, mainstream TV covering it again. So uh, I think there's only three episodes, if I'm right. Um, I've got to say they're going to be out every Sunday for a couple of weeks. It's going to be on E4 on Wednesday evenings. But um, I've, I've got a feeling it's a bit of a tester. And maybe if it does well, you know, it might be ongoing and be back permanently. Who knows? I saw the Crystal Maze did well and then they killed it yeah. after two series. So. Hmm. I've got to say, Imagine Games Master's cheaper to make than the Crystal Maze. Yeah, I I must say, as well, the sets, it looked like a nice venue, but it did look a bit cheap. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it it didn't look as lavish as the original, you're right. Um, But yeah, so if you want to watch it, I mean, if you're outside the UK, it is on E4's YouTube channel, and I'll link that up in the show notes at theretroil.com. Welcome back, Games Master. Nice to have you back. Now, Atari, obviously a company that we've covered on this show numerous times in uh, various guises in recent years. I mean, we have the, uh, the Atari hotels that were opening in uh, Vegas, I believe it was, and then we had the, the Atari cryptocurrency they were working on, which um, was all a little bit bizarre. Um, however, now, they're going kind of back to roots, it seems, by selling rare, unreleased 2600 games in cartridge format, as part of a new scheme they've got called Atari XP. You, you forgot about the VCS there as well. <laughs> yeah. I was trying my best to forget about the VCS. <laughs> it was fully aware of the VCS. <laughs> so, so is this? I'm not too familiar with this. So, is this coming directly from Atari? Then is it? Like, yeah. it's not like a Kickstarter or anything like that. Like Atari, no, no. are doing this themselves. Yeah, so if you go to um, AtariXP.com, um, which is their website for this. So what they're doing is, I mean, these games that they've got on there, um, they're kind of bigging it up as um, these are kind of unreleased games. I mean, 
all of these games you can get the ROMs and stuff that have been floating around online for years. But I think a lot of these kind of were in that kind of 1983 video game crash yeah. era. Yeah. So, I mean, stuff like um, Aqua Venture, um, which I mean, I, I'll admit, you know, I'm not a big Atari gamer. Um, I don't really know all that much about the system. You know, it was yeah. kind of, I think we all agreed before even my time. Um, but, you know, I've got an Atari 2600. The games are very simplistic on that platform, but obviously a lot of legacy, and I know there is a huge fan community for it. And what they're doing with these games is, they're really games that, you know, are not easy to come by on cartridge format, so they're putting these out on special collector's editions, so you can get these. The price of them is quite high, mm. but these are original Atari 2600 games in a cartridge. You can play on your original console, and it's games like um, Aquaventure, Saboteur, and Yars Return, which was the, um, I believe it was a fan mod of Yars Revenge. Right. Um, it wasn't like an official sequel, if I That's, that's the most right there. iconic one that stands out to me. Yeah. Uh, Yars Return, but uh, Saboteur as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, does, it does look good. They're like properly full releases, and, uh, you know, Howard Scott Walshaw that um, we actually had on the show design saboteur as well and uh, mm. I'm sure he was involved in some of the early ones and uh, was notorious with the uh, video game crash what as well what, what I do love is the special edition the collector's edition like you say the video game crash of 1983 they're doing 1,983 copies of the uh, collector's edition this is weird right this is weird I was looking at it and I'm like okay so the collector's edition, you're doing 1,983. Standard edition, you're doing 1,500. Yeah, so the standard one's <laughs> going to be rarer than the collector's yeah. edition. That, that made me laugh as well. Yeah, standard edition is actually probably going to be more collectible. So the standard edition's $49.99, and then the collector's edition units are going to be 149.99. So if you wanted all three collector's edition versions, that's going to set you back, you know, $450. So, yeah, yeah, pretty steep, like you say, Dan, but it's very cool. It is really, really cool. And these look high quality. I mean, if you go on to, yeah, satoriexp.com, um, you can take a look at these. They've got some photos of the product there as well. Um, they all come in on cartridges, nice labels, you know, look like original 2600 games from back in the day, um, made from special plastics, they've put it. You also get a nice box as well. Um, the limited edition version, the collector's, the limited edition collector's version of it. That comes in a massive box by the look of it. Oh, okay. Um, definitely a bit of a shelf hogger. Um, you've got instruction manuals, bonus material in there as well. Um, they've got a uh, flexible pin. Yeah, yeah hard, hard style. Hard, hard style. <laughs> <laughs> Not hard style music. No, hard cover book as well. Yeah. And a digital copy of the game that's playable on the Atari VCS. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think 1,983 people even bought the Atari BCS uh, modern version. Maybe this will be yeah. the killer app that they're waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to play my digital copy of Yars Return on my BCS. So, I mean, we did get sent this off a few people. I think these were actually... You can get these games on. I mean, obviously, the ROMs are out there, like I said. I think they're on a couple of the flashback consoles as well. Oh, okay. You know, that came out yeah. back in the 2000s. So they're not even hard to find games in terms of playing them, getting, getting them actually on a, an official cartridge is. Um, and then 607 in our Discord um, sent this story to us. And I just think, yeah, I mean, it is nice to see the Atari brand being used for something relevant, I think, to what you expect them to, to be doing. Yeah, totally. It's like, I, I don't really care about the Atari Hotel and stuff. It, 
it makes a good thing for us to talk about in the podcast, but like, these are actually really cool, and if you're a collector of 2600 games, then, you know, $50 each, mm. standard edition with it kind of all printed and, uh, you know, in an actual cartridge, yeah, I can, I can imagine people who love these and getting them on the shelves, and to be honest, these looked like they were just brands that they had hanging around, so they could just uh, straight away produce it, hopefully there'll be more. And that price is not. T- I mean, I've seen people complaining that it's way too expensive, but forty nine ninety nine for like a, a you know boxed game with a manual, and I don't think that's bad actually. But you know, these generally go to people that are probably never going to open them. They'll just put them on shelves as collectors' items. Well, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's like you know the limited run games. You know, they're generally around similar prices, aren't they? Yeah, that is very true. Um, and you are right. You know, I've got two limited run games, and I've not opened them. You know, I've got the digital copies of those games already and just bought them so they can sit in the cellophane on my shelf. So you are very, you are very right there. <laughs> but I bet you haven't got the digital copies on your Atari 2600 PCS console. No, I don't. <laughs> you haven't even got an Atari then. You can borrow Borrow mine any time you want. <laughs> so uh, we'll link that up. You'll get hold of those. Um, I think they're available very soon on their website and you'll find it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And we're going to talk about Resident Evil Dreamcast, a special edition of that in just a moment, and a remake of a classic terrifying board game in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a quick second to give a big thank you to one of our favourite supporters. I mean, we love them all, of course, but Beer52, who've uh, supported this podcast for years and years now, and really, it's irrelevant at this time of year. You know, the party season's here. It's only been better than sitting down, playing a few video games, and getting some free beer. Those magical words, Joe. Magical, magical words. Free beer. What, what could be better than free beer and Christmas together? There you go. Well, the festive season is here, and uh, keeping in the spirit of giving, our friends at Beer 52 are offering you actually more than eight this time. They've got a special Christmas deal on where you can get ten free beers because we're feeling really festive. All you've got to do is head to this website right now, beer52.com slash retro. That is beer, number five, number two, dot com slash retro. You just cover the £5.95 postage, claim your free case of ten beers, and if you do it before 17th of December, they'll get the extra two in there, so you get ten completely free, normally it's only eight. Now, Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They actually have beer experts who go around the world trying to find the best beer available anywhere on the planet. And each month you get this gorgeous little case through the door, um, and it comes with beers from different parts of the world. So that means, you know, I've been a Beer 52 member for about three years now, and I think there's been, uh, you know, beers from more than 40 countries across five different continents, you know, that I've seen them do as well. And uh, the thing about it is, if you've got friends coming over for Christmas parties or Christmas dinner as well, there is something for everyone in here as well. Like, you know, Ravi, you like your IPA. You like your light elves and stuff, don't you? So oh, definitely. Choose a light yeah, it's good to have the choice. Yeah, so if dark beer is not your thing, choose a light option. And um, as well as the delicious beer, you will get Ferment Magazine, which you don't realise how interesting beer is until you have a little scroll through um, Ferment Magazine. Really interesting. Delves into the beers, the breweries, the background on them, the stories as well. And at Joe's favourite bit. You get two delicious snacks as well to wash the beer down with. Absolutely. Always my favourite part, especially when you turn beer deep. Yeah. Well, you, normally you open the box and you're munching it before you even look at the can. To be honest. Yeah, this is very true. <laughs> <laughs> so, after redeeming your first case, you'll join the monthly beer club. Um, no minimum commitment. You can pause or cancel at any time if it's not for you. Just try the beer, see what you think if you want. And support the podcast, beer52.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at Beer52 for their support of our show. 
And this is quite well timed, actually, because we did our patrons' exclusive podcast over the weekend, the Retro Hour After Hours, which was all about the Sega Dreamcast. And what about this? If you've got a spare $18,000 down the back of the sofa, Joe, you could get yourself a Resident Evil-themed Dreamcast, which I imagine, you know, Resident Evil being your favourite game franchise, and you being our Sega boy, this must be a match made in heaven for you. I, I want it to be a match made in heaven, but... $18,000 is just ridiculous, if you ask me. Now, Ravi has done some research um, on the actual rarity of some of these consoles, which is really interesting because he's telling me about it earlier today. But yeah, I mean, it is cool at the end of the day. So this is a Japanese exclusive clear blue Dreamcast, which came out with Code Veronica, Resident Evil Code Veronica, or Biohazard Code Veronica, as it's known in Japan, and, you know, you get the limited edition box, limited edition version of Code Veronica. You also get a matching VMU, the memory card, with the console as well, as well as, you know, the clear blue controller. But what makes it rare is the Resident Evil Stars logo. It's on the top of the uh, mm. the Dreamcast, which is quite interesting because there's not... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you guys probably don't know, but the Stars don't really come into Code Veronica that much. Wesco, who is an ex-Stars member is in that game, but and, and Chris Redfield, I guess, who is a Stars member, so yeah, I guess they are in the game, correct me, I'm, I'm wrong there, but they made 200 of this console, so it, it is pretty rare, and this is the only one at the moment, which is like on, is it on eBay? It's yeah, they've, they've yeah. listed it at on Buy It Now, on buy it now okay, so I don't know if anybody's okay. bought it now yet, but... um. I think they'll probably take an offer, but still, that, but, I guess this is someone thinking they've hit the gold mine here. Yeah, and I, I guess it's somebody who bought it and then kept it in pristine condition, because the listing's saying it's in absolute mint condition. Is it water-graded? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's just, it's just the box. It's not sealed or anything like that. Now, if it was sealed... Maybe with the whole yeah. stuff that's going on at the moment with all, you know, sealed games and stuff like that, maybe it's sell for 18000 or maybe somebody from Wata will buy it for 18000 <laughs> But, yeah, it just it just seems a little bit steep. But, funny enough, there is another Code Veronica-themed variation of the Sega Dreamcast, which they made 1800 units for, which is also on eBay, but that's $2,500. Um, it's, it's weird, because I'd seen these things around for years, because yeah. um, there were, like, loads of different versions of Dreamcast stuff, and they'd be, like, associated with games, or you'd have, like, clear cases, mm. gold cases, stuff like that. The Hello Kitty uh, was a famous one, because it's kind of pink and uh, transparent as well. But um, I, I remember another one. I was just looking at this slight console variations, and it's got, like six pages of different Dreamcast uh, consoles, and the rarest one seems to be uh, Rage 2 with uh, Anarchy symbol on, on, on the top of it. But um, mm. interestingly, there was a Fred Durst one. I don't know if you remember the, the yeah, singer um, from Limp Bizkit signed a load, yeah. Well, I we think we covered that years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think we did, you're right. In, interesting, you should say, about, you know, other variations, but that, that's what got me is when you sent me this is, there is another, so a third Resident Evil Code Veronica variation um, of the Dreamcast, but this one is actually an unlicensed release, which came out in Germany um, as part of a competition where nine, uh, I think it was nine of them, were made in the end, 
where they were airbrushed by an artist called T-Ratchet, and it was part of a competition where you could win win this version of the Dreamcast. So apparently there's nine of these airbrushed ones out there. Now, in terms of, like, authenticity of it and stuff, I guess they just bought normal Dreamcasts, gave them to the artist, and then he airbrushed over them. So, mm. it's like, are they official or are they not official? But well, it, 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 it's, it's on it, there. You know, it's, it's on there. It's the like there. the um, Sega Dreamcast Divers. Um, mm. console, you know, uh, that 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 was really weird, and obviously that one stood out, but there were so many variations of this, and mm. it actually reminds me of um, the Game Gear, where they had so many different variations of the Game Gear, they had like Coca-Cola versions, uh, you know, um, white, one. Yeah. white one, blue ones, you know, <laughs> all, all kind of different types, and some were tied into promotions and stuff like that as well. And I think as well, the fact that the Dreamcast only sold 9 million units probably is why you know these kind of collector's editions are rarer than they maybe are on other consoles. Yeah, maybe, but you know, considering you like you say it sold 9 million units, there is, like Ravi said, there's a good like 50 variations of the Dreamcast mm. when you look on it. I mean, a lot of them are Japanese, a hell of a lot more Japanese and just have like a print on the top of them. But you know, I always thought it was like the N64 was the one which had the most variations, but. You know, it looks like it could be the Dreamcast, to be honest. Well, that R7 one, Regulation 7, I used to always see that everywhere. Uh, as, a, as a rare one, you know, people mm. would be uh, selling them in shows and stuff. Um, but I, I bet they're getting quite expensive as well. You know, it, it, obviously we see these auctions all the time. And we talk about them on the podcast. We often don't follow them up and actually see if they've sold, though. So whether it's going to sell for that amount. Because uh, whenever I read these stories, I think, oh, why didn't I buy, like, you know, a the Pikachu edition of the N64 back in the day and keep it boxed. Or, you know, I always think when I see, you know, the Wii U when that was on sale, why didn't I buy an extra one and keep it in the attic? It'd be worth 20 grand in 20 years. Obviously, you never know the way the market is going to go. Yeah. But it does make you think that, you know, I don't know if these things are selling or whether they're just headline grabbing things. Being but it will be optimistic and enthusiastic about yeah. them selling for $18,000 on eBay. So, yeah, maybe one day we should do a dedicated episode where we troll through everything that we've ever discussed on the show and we go back and see if they sold. That would be a long switch, time. That switch is never going to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, this article I'll link up on our show notes on inputmag.com. I mean, they, they mentioned it at the end there, you know, kind of how ridiculous this is. If you want to trade your kid's college funding for a piece of 20-year-old plastic, you can do it now on eBay, which, you know, just put it into perspective, I think. Something that's coming back, though, that you don't have to find, you know, a 30-year-old version of this is a board game. It was actually a board video game called Atmosphere that's returning from the dead after smashing its target on Kickstarter. Now, I'm only aware of this game from uh, James Rolfe when he did the um, his, board, ga- his um, board Games series where he covered board games, and that was one of my favourite video series that James has ever done. Um, and he played Atmosphere probably about five years ago on his YouTube channel now. Are you guys familiar with this game, then? Do you remember it from back in the day? I, I, I don't remember specifically this game, but I remember the the vein of these games, you know, the video yeah. videotape games where you would play them and then pause them. And, and it just so happens that most of the ones I remember or ever see, I do remember them always being horror games or kind of like yeah. Sherlock Holmes kind of mystery games. But this seems to be, from looking at it and just kind of like the little bit of research we've done on it, this seems to be like probably one of the more famous ones. Um, yeah. And you know what? Like, obviously, I guess like a few games like Seen It and stuff like that, you know, the DVD games in the early like 2000s kind of, kind of recaptured 
what this game is doing, you know, that kind of like, you know, interactive digital kind of aspect of it. But you know what? I've not really seen that. And so, I mean, I could be completely wrong. Like, people are probably like laughing at me now and going, Joe, there's, you know, so many of these games. But they know. were everywhere when I, I was. I was going to say, I haven't seen anything like this recently. Well, when I was, like, younger, going yeah. round, you'd have, like, Amigas on other car boots there because everyone yeah. was getting rid of them. And then a couple of copies of Atmosphere. <laughs> you'd oh, have, yeah. like, all the expansions as well and stuff. And uh, they were everywhere. I must have had about three copies boxed of Atmosphere. Oh, wow. Um, in really good quality. And it was always one thing that you'd say, let's play Atmosphere and sit down and play it. And then... The ham acting and stuff, you just, oh, I can't be arsed, let's play Monopoly <laughs> or something, you know, it was a, it was one of those kind of things, but I don't know, it was just absolutely everywhere from what I remember. And um, Well, it was also called um, Nightmare in some parts of the world as well, so there's two different names for it. Um, originated from Australia, but the way this game works, if you haven't played it, so it's a multiplayer game, you know, like a, an adventure game, you sit down and play, it's a board game. You put a videotape in, though, that lasts for an hour, and there's this character on there called the Gatekeeper, who uh, just randomly pops up. So the tape goes quiet, you get this kind of plinky-plonky music, you know, just away in the background, but all of a sudden this happens. Who is just about to roll the dice? Come to me! If you fail to answer yes, my gatekeeping time, you must roll a six! before you can play again. It's actually slightly confused, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure where he's meant to be from, but yeah. And just that coming on, can you imagine that? The room's all quiet and that just blasts. Yeah, and then the you can just fast forward and kind of see what happens later <laughs> on. <laughs> what, what makes me laugh is, if you're really familiar with this game, I guess you would know when it happens after yeah. like five or ten minutes on it being on video. So I'm guessing the new version, it's coming on DVD or, you know, like some sort of file that you can download via iPad or computer or phone or whatever. And I guess maybe, I mean, I, I'm completely shooting in the dark here, like different variations, so it doesn't just happen like at seven minutes in. Not <laughs> me every single time you play kind of thing. I'm not sure if they've changed it. I think it's still the same video. Oh, is it? Fair it said, um, Yeah. Apparently they expand the original. It, it, it will be streamed online. Is it? Okay. That's what they're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah, that makes sense. I should know that. <laughs> I mean, it, but it looks like the same video from the original, doesn't it? The same guy. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it looks cool. And, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of it. And it's definitely done well because they wanted, that wasn't in pounds. I'm guessing it was in dollars for the odd number. They wanted, they needed 48,529. And they, so far at the point of recording, just got 107,000 pounds. So they doubled what they needed. So it's definitely a popular game. But to be perfectly honest, I'll just come and play one of Rabbi's free copies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's in Australian dollars, but they um they actually uh, are available on YouTube. I don't know if they've been taken down, but I do remember, like, the whole version of the game was yeah. available on YouTube. But it looks cool. They've got, like, you know, some you can get an atmosphere skeleton key and <laughs> walk around with it on your belt and stuff. And nice. Like, if you're really into it, it's a cool collector's thing. You know, it always reminded me of Crystal Maze or, or Nightmare or that that kind of band of uh, games, you know. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was Nightmare, you know, the UK version of Nightmare, like the board game of it when I first saw the article. And I was like, oh, but then realised what it was. But, yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I think it's cool that they're bringing it back. Yeah, I mean, board games seem to have had a bit of a you know, revival in the last 
Yeah, well, especially pre-COVID, yeah. I remember a lot of kind of board game cafes being set up in you know most major cities here in the UK, and it is cool to see these kind of classic games coming back. I mean, I remember stuff like Heroes Quest and Key to the Kingdom. You know, I've still got my original version of that from back in the early nineties. Amazing games. So I think you know there is a lot of nostalgia around these late eighties, early nineties games. So um, the fact that these Kickstarters, I mean, it proves that you know that it smashed it. Definitely seems a bit of an untapped market. I mean, we've had so many video game re-releases, but getting these kind of remakes of classic board games, I think, is very cool. So, if you want to get hold of that, um, it's on Kickstarter right now. Smashing its target already. I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, last week we were talking about Dune, obviously, a um, massive movie. You know, back out in cinemas again now, that new version of it. Um, we were talking about the games last week, that lost Game Boy Advance game that's coming back now, the, the Mega CD version, the Amiga game back in the day, the came out on Virgin Games. Obviously a massive, massive franchise. This is quite an interesting article on Vice. It turns out the screenplay of Dune um, was actually written by, you know, screenwriter Eric Roth. He banged out the entire screenplay using an MS-DOS program called Movie Master. And apparently he writes everything on this old MS-DOS program that can only hold 40 pages in its memory. What makes me laugh about this is just kind of like the heartfelt, genuine reason for this, that is, that is he said that he's scared of change. <laughs> like, mm. it worked for him, so, so why change it? I mean, it sounds like it's a bit of a pain in the ass if it only been able to be 40 pages, because aren't, like, you know, um, the screenplays for films, like, hundreds of pages long? Yeah, I mean, I guess he breaks it up. He breaks it up and everything like that, so, you know, disc one, disc two, or whatever kind of thing, disc three, um, and all that jazz, but I just love the honesty of it, like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a bit scared of change, and this works for me. You know, um, like, I I do a lot of writing and stuff, and to focus, I put a vinyl record on, and I make sure I've got a mechanical keyboard, and kind of work on that, and you you just get in the zone and try and turn everything else off, but I, I think this is cool, you know, there's a certain thing about focusing on an old program or just having it to do the one task and mm. at least at least he's doing it on MS DOS. He's not like one of these hipsters on a typewriter. Um <laughs> but even though that, that that could be pretty cool doing it on a typewriter. I used to have a little electronic typewriter actually. And uh I could imagine just writing something on there could be just really satisfying. Yeah. I mean he does go on to say it's also superstition, which I guess links in with what you just said. You know, it kind of gets him in that mindset and everything. And also, apparently, he does like the 40-page limit because of, he actually does break it down into acts of the film. And, mm. you know, forty page, if he can't do it in 40 pages, he knows it's too long for the film anyway. I, know, I love the thing that he has to print off a hard copy and then oh, really? scan it. <laughs> and uh, to put it on their computer, they have to obviously put it through, like, OCR, optical character recognition or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to get it going, because he can't email or send anything. I imagine there must be a way to get a text file. Out yeah, maybe if he's in DOSBox or something, there'll be a, yeah. a way to... Oh, God, w- let's help him configure DOSBox. <laughs> well, actually, he mentions that as a positive, though. He's saying this, no one can get to this. Yeah, true. It's not on the internet, yeah. you know. And in a way, I mean, you know, we, we've, we've talked about it before, you know, George Martin, who wrote... Um, Game of Thrones, you know, he wrote words, he uses WordStar on MS-DOS for a similar reason, but also he says, you know, because it's not connected to the internet, it can't be hacked. No one can steal it and leak it, you know, on the internet, which, for security, having a disconnected 30-year-old machine, I imagine the only way anyone's going to get a copy of that is break into his house with a floppy disk. And and this this video that they've done on Creative Spark, um, he's got an old keyboard, 
uh, mechanical, uh, an old mechanical keyboard and a DOS keyboard that looks like of the era. And he's also yeah. got an old school phone next to it as well, so he's, <laughs> he's proper rocking it. Yeah. It looks very comfy, I've got to say. So, uh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've mentioned it on the show before. I mean, I've got my tax return that I need to do soon. You know, I've left it a bit late this year. Uh, but normally I do my tax return on an Amiga. You know, just because I haven't got Twitter flashing up every five minutes or, you know, I haven't got, oh, I'll check Facebook or, you know, the fact that I'm just dedicating machines and everything else off, yeah, put a bit of soft music on the background, just sit there and focus on it, you know. So I think it does have advantages because today, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm this podcast now, I've got Twitter messages popping up, my phone's going off in the court, you know, it's these constant distractions all the time and sometimes it can be hard just to focus on one task on a machine, I think, now. I'm now looking up my electronic typewriter on eBay. <laughs> So if you want to check out that video, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat all about the secret history of Mac gaming, let's give a quick but big mention to our incredible patrons who, of course, keep the Retro Hour podcast coming out each and every Friday and us to keep producing this show for you, getting these incredible guests on the show each week as well. We actually did our latest patrons hang out of the weekend. You know, whenever we do our patrons hang out, my room is a complete tip afterwards. Because when we're doing it, I'm like, we're talking about old video game magazines, weren't we? And I've been rebuying a load of eBay recently, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to show everyone this issue, I'm going to show everyone this one. And my floor is now covered <laughs> in our video game mags. Oh, yeah, it, it, was, it was an awesome chat, and it was great to see everyone, and I'm glad they didn't all run off when I mentioned uh, Games Master. <laughs> reviewed straight away. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there were some cool subjects uh, discussed, and uh, we chatted about retro gaming raffles and stuff like that. Um, but, mm. you know, it's it's really great having this kind of patron support and having a, a group of patrons as well, because, uh, you know, you guys really make this show. We're, without you guys, we'd be broadcasting and chatting to nobody. Yeah, and it allows us to pay for all the running costs of the show and everything having Patreon there. And, you know, we just love the community too. I mean, one thing we were talking about was um, our first ever mobile phones. <laughs> and afterwards, I was actually going on eBay to try and find I a, a Philips. I knew phone. you were going to do that. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> They're quite pricey now, annoyingly. But, yeah, I was tempted. Um, so, yeah, we, we do our patrons hang out once a month on a Sunday evening. All our patrons get together. A bit of a virtual users group. And next time, it's going to be a, a virtual Christmas party, the December one. So already looking forward to that. So if you'd like to join us for it, all patrons are welcome. And, of course, you get other perks for being a patron of this podcast. You get the uh, usual show early. Most weeks you get it ad-free as well. You get extra content in there. We did a couple of extra patron stories this week that only our patrons can hear. Uh, but also you get access to the exclusive patrons podcast that we do that comes out once a month, the Retro Hour After Hours, where we've actually just done about an hour and 20 minutes all about the Sega Dreamcast that was... So much fun to do that episode, wasn't it? I absolutely loved going back and revisiting the Dreamcast. Um, a couple of people pointed out, spoiler, that none of us picked Shenmue as our favourite game. Because <laughs> <laughs> we did our top five games. Yeah. yeah. Shen- Shenmue wasn't on the Shenmue, list. unfortunately, wasn't on the list. But that's because there were so many great games that we spoke about, you know, and gave our thoughts on and stuff like that. But yeah, I loved that episode. Yeah, and actually, I've got my dream card now. After we did it, it's back on my table now, getting ready to uh, set it up this weekend. So we get access to that as well. Load of other perks as well, but really we're doing it to make sure this podcast comes out each and every Friday. And you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest patrons, Tommy Retro Nerding, David Harling, Kevin Fisher, and Philip Powell, who are all back to us this week on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them, you'll find it right now on our website. All the details 
at theretrohour.com. All right, we're going to be chatting about the secret history of Mac Gaming in just a minute before we do. And just a moment to give a huge thank you to another big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast. And this is our friends at Retro Gamer Magazine. I've got the latest uh, rather substantial issue here in my hand. I'm going to flick through it there. But the sound of magazine. The, the now. sound of real life information. <laughs> It's just having a magazine, I mean, you know, I mentioned, you know, in our places, I was going to put my old gaming mags. Retro Gamer has that vibe, and it reminds me of the magazines that I loved as a kid. And actually, the uh, cover issue on the December um, issue of Retro Gamer, it's all about 20 years as Halo Combat evolved, 20 years since Halo came out now. Um, and obviously, what an incredible game, and a franchise that still continues to this day. Well, that's kind of playing into the uh, 20 years of the Xbox as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, and, and that title really did make the Xbox a uh, fantastic one, Halo was. But, you know, there's some great stuff in this one as well. Stuff like they're looking at the Atari Jaguar Pro Controller. Do you have one of those? I have two of those. Next to me, actually. They're not the originals I've got. They did some, um, I got some repros of them a few years ago. So I bought them then. They're pretty identical to the originals, just without the Atari logo. But, yeah, they're a lot nicer than the original controllers, which I know is a bit of an acquired taste, but, yeah, definitely my preferred way to play Jaguar games. And they're also looking at the story of QuakeCon, which I'm really interested in reading about, because that's just a legendary gaming event that still goes on to this day. What I also like about it as well, because I know some people will be like, hey, that's only 20 years old. They've also got Back to the Naughty section, and they also review a game that I absolutely love, Flintstones, for the Master System, which is really cool. <laughs> I love that, the fact that they pick out just games that you know you wouldn't expect them to cover as well like that. But, I mean, they've got some big games from back in the day. Uh, Rainbow Islands, you know, talking about the um, Amstrad CPC port of that too. Um, also the making of Nigel Mansell's World Championship as well. I was a big fan of that game back in the day, actually, Gremlin. A really good racing game back in the day. Um, the Intellivision 2 in their Hardware Heaven section. So, really, if you're a fan of our podcast... You're going to love Retro Gamer magazine. You should be checking it out each month. And actually, we've got an incredible offer for you. Not only will you save some money on um, a Retro Gamer subscription, but also you will get a fantastic controller as well. So you will subscribe and get a free N64 Tribute or a Mega Drive Bluetooth controller. Now, this Mega Drive one is the six-button version, which I think is everyone's favourite Mega Drive controller, isn't it? Yeah, the six-button controller um, is absolutely awesome, which you can get for free. Or, I really, really do like the N64 controller because if this is like the N64 controller that we all needed when we were kids when the mm. N64 came out. It is like a classic two-prong controller rather than that triple-prong controller that we all got. So, it's a really tough one what to pick, but they're both absolutely awesome controllers. Yeah, so the Mega Drive Bluetooth controller, that works with your you know, Windows machine, Mac, Raspberry Pi, iOS, and Switch. The Tribute 64 controller, you can get that as a USB version, mm-hmm. works with all those two. Or a classic N64 port, so you can use it on your original console. So if you, you, know, you love the N64, but you think, I hate that controller, this is perfect for it as well. Or, or to play you know, the um, N64 games on the Switch that are online right now as well. So get hold of Retro Gamer and support this podcast by using our exclusive link magazinesdirect.com slash retropod and maybe you already subscribed to Retro Gamer obviously Christmas coming up you can gift the mate to someone else keep the gift to yourself uh, magazinesdirect.com slash retropod get six months of Retro Gamer magazine with a retro controller absolutely free and of course a big thank you to our friends at Retro Gamer for their support of our show right then are we ready for the secret history of Mac Gaming, talking about some classic games. If you ever thought the Mac wasn't a gaming platform, we're going to change your mind with the author of this amazing new book. Richard Moss is our special guest. 
next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event. Then, when we welcome on our special guest and get into this week's theme, now uh, we're going to be talking about classic Mac gaming and I think there is a bit of a, a misconception that you know today the Mac is not really seen as you know much of a gaming platform that wasn't always the case though and actually some really big franchises um, first started on the Mac so we're going to get into that and lots more with the author of this incredible new book The Secret History of Mac Gaming Richard Moss welcome to the show hello it's great to be here great to have you joining us now before we get into this I mean you're obviously a bit of a you know no stranger to podcasting you actually do your own podcast as well don't you I do. I, I make a show called The Life and Times of Video Games, which is this uh, sort of documentary-style show. So I, I script these episodes, uh, like a you know, long-form magazine article or something, um, mm. based on interviews and a whole lot of research. And, and I clip it all together, edit it nicely, and uh, compose my own music and, and try and package a really nice story. Yes, if you enjoy our podcast and want to hear, you know, what it would be like if we weren't so lazy, and it was actually really well produced, have a listen to Richard. <laughs> I mean, you've had some people on, you like Chris Crawford, I was listening to that episode, and, you know, it's, it's just incredible. So, amazing work on the podcast, and I'll, I'll link that up in our show, and that's if people want to check it out. But, of course, today we're going to be talking about Matt Gaming and uh, your new book as well. But it's always nice to kind of get a bit of background on our guests and kind of find out your history with computers. And I mean, was it like a history earlier than the Mac then? Where did it all kind of begin, your interest in computers? Well, for me, it really did begin with the Mac. And that's largely down to uh, just my circumstances where um, my dad bought a Macintosh Plus. Uh, I don't know how he afforded it. Um, they were so expensive back then. They were like equivalent of $10,000 or something. So he probably just poured his savings into it. But the the Mac Plus came out in the uh, mid to late 80s. I think it was about 86, 87. And then this was the first computer I ever used. And I was like a, I was a baby when I first uh, saw it. And actually, my one of my earliest memories, I would have been maybe three or four years old. And I, I was actually, I was watching TV, I remember as well, uh, at the time. And we had the Mac in the, in the corner of the living room, a few meters away from the TV. And I was watching, like, Banana Man or, or uh, Captain Planet or something like that. Some kid, classic. Kids, kids family, classic cartoon. And my brother had just got this new game. It was a few years old at, this, at that point, but he'd got this game, Ultimate Reality of the City, which is, uh, I don't know how well you guys know it, but it's a, it's a sort of open-ended role-playing game, a computer role-playing game that was not a very good game, but very innovative, crazily forward thinking it had all these insane systems like there was a weather system in the in the game uh, you could put your money in the bank and it would actually earn interest it was ridiculously uh, complicated systems in the thing and he put this game in and I just I heard him starting it up and I turned around and I was what is that and uh, it, the intro is really cool there's like this spaceship coming down and uh, flashing lights and this is black and white because it was Macintosh a 1980s Macintosh, and they were only in black and white, but it still looked really cool and had great sound. And, and I was spellbound by it. What is this? And I just watched him play for, for the next hour. And that's really where it all began for me. You must have got a lot of stuff from the previous library. So, like, you know, there must have been a lot of Apple II software that then went onto the Macintosh and kind of, you know, really, really helped because uh, uh, that was one of the kind of earliest platforms for 
for creating good gaming, wasn't it, the uh, Apple II? And there actually wasn't as much uh, conversion happening as you would think. And I think it's because the Macintosh was very difficult to make games for. If you were used to the 8-bit computers of the day, the Apple II, the Commodore 64, the, the Spectrum, and so on, it was much higher resolution graphics. It was 512 by 342 pixels. It was entirely black and white, just black pixels on a white background. Uh, and so you get the illusion of grades to a technique called dithering, which is just using lots of dots uh, in different patterns. And you had a fully uh, interactive windowed environment that was mouse-driven. So you had multiple overlapping windows in the system. You had a, a menu bar. You had just the, the fact that it was mouse-driven was really novel and unusual. So it was a lot that you had to redo in converting your game. And in that era, ports were really quick and dirty. If you needed more than like a, a month or two to do your port, then you might not think it's worth the bother. So there'd be some conversions, but not a lot, because the Mac audience was really fickle, and it was a lot of work. And we had a new platform as well, and so the install base wasn't very, wasn't very big. People didn't bother. Well, the Mac today, um, obviously for you know, PC gamers, it's not really regarded as much of a gaming platform, as I mentioned in the intro. Was that different back in the day, though? Uh, it was always regarded with a bit of disdain. This goes back to a decision that Apple made in 1983 when they were getting ready to release the Macintosh because they had internally intended it as this very playful fun system to use. It, it would be inviting and appealing. It, it, it even smiles at you on startup. There's this thing called the Happy Mac, this icon that appears on the screen when you first turn the computer on, and it'd be a little smiling graphic of the Macintosh. And then it would say, welcome to Macintosh. So it was all a very friendly system. And they had intended that there, there would be games on the system because it's a playful utility machine for your home, just like the Apple II had been. But they also wanted to get into the business space. So then this was really important. They wanted to take down IBM. They were always ambitious, Apple. So then when they're getting ready to release the Mac, they start hearing whispers from the business community, oh, this thing's a toy. We can't take it seriously because it looks like a toy. It works like a toy. It's too much fun to use. Computers shouldn't be fun to use or easy to use. They should be hard because... How do you do serious work in something that's so joyful? This was really the kind of thinking that they had. And so Apple marketing kind of freaked out. And they backed up, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, this is a serious machine. You don't play games on it. This is a serious machine for serious work. And so they took this game that was going to be bundled with every Macintosh, and they put it in a, a separate product. This was called Alice or got released as Through the Looking Glass. It's a pretty cool real-time chess thing where uh, Alice in Wonderland is filling in for all the white pieces. Uh, you choose which one she plays at at any given time. And then they didn't give much support to the games industry. And then meanwhile, the games industry was like, well, this is a new platform with a lot of work to support it. We're going to sit back and wait and see what happens. And it was like another four years before Apple... Uh, actually said, oh yeah, games, maybe they do matter, because they started to look at the education market. And I know um, Steve Jobs and Woz actually had like a history of gaming, because uh, they were at Atari, and uh, uh, yeah. did Breakout. So um, uh, it was just kind of a, a strategy of um, 
uh, what what Steve Jobs was thinking at the time, or, or did he have a bit more of a, a love for gaming? Jobs was never much a gamer. He uh, he thought that he seems to have thought they were interesting, but he never really grabbed onto them like Woz did. Woz was always a big gamer, and he kept playing games on the Mac for years. And I've heard lots of stories from people who made shareware games in the 90s that say, Woz sent me a check, and I got it framed and I put it on my wall. <laughs> so, <laughs> so excited. Woz actually paid me money. Woz has played my little obscure game. But Steve Jobs um, was never really a big games guy. And uh, he was ousted from Apple anyway in 1985 uh, after he lost control of the Macintosh. Well, what were some of the earliest Mac games that are now regarded as classics? Early games, I guess, uh, the stuff from Icom Simulations, uh, Deja Vu, Shadowgate, were very influential games that, that had a, quite a widespread. They got ported to the other, the other platforms, the Amiga, the ST, uh, but also to the Nintendo. Uh, where they were very popular. And they had been almost a direct response to the Macintosh. The the guys at Icom, they had a little bit of experience doing text adventures and, and they'd been doing some like business stuff. Then when they got the Macintosh, they saw what it was capable of and they thought, we can make an adventure game with graphics and with all the verbs on the screen. Let's make the verbs something that you can click on. And they sort of invented the point-and-click adventure genre uh, in doing that. And you also had um, Chris Crawford, we mentioned before. Balance of Power was designed and developed on a Mac initially. That was a massively successful, very serious geopolitical simulation where the goal is to prevent a nuclear war. I guess... If you were into computer games on 16-bit systems in the 80s, you probably knew about Dark Castle and Shufflepuck Cafe. They started with the Mac. They're great games. At least on computers, they were great games. Uh, Dark Castle has a very bad reputation among console gamers. Um, Crystal Quest from Patrick Buckland was another great one. And Those are probably the most influential, really early stuff from the the mid-80s. Well, you mentioned the shareware scene there, and like, yeah. how important at that time was the shareware scene to like the growth of Mac gaming? Well, shareware was critical to the Mac gaming space, and there were shareware games on the Mac basically as soon as there was a Mac. You know, like back in 1984, uh, the the very very earliest Mac shareware games were coming out, and there was a really cool one released in '85 called um, Captain Magneto, which was a, sort of a top-down adventure game. It was inspired in large part by Ultima, where the developer wanted to, when he played Ultima, he wanted to be able to make friends with uh, all the, the bad creatures in the world. He didn't want to have it only be certain creatures would be scripted to be good guys and certain ones would be bad guys. He wanted something a bit more dynamic. So... He coded his own his own version of that. But then uh, you had a whole shareware scene emerge a couple of years after that. And probably a lot of it growing out of the games by this guy, Dwayne Blem, who made a nifty little game called Stuntcopter, which basically everyone who had a Mac in the 80s or the early 90s has played. It's a super simple game. You just, you have a, a helicopter flying across, flying back like around the screen, 
it, it's a wraparound screen, and you've got a tiny little stick figure dude hanging from the helicopter. You click to drop him, and he drops down, arms flailing, legs flailing around, and he either goes splat on the ground, or he lands in a hay wagon. If he lands in the hay at the back of the wagon, that's a successful jump. If you do it five times, uh, you get more difficult and it keeps getting faster and faster. Or if you land on the horse, the horse tips over, or you can land on the driver, the driver tips over. It's a very cute, funny animation and like <clears throat> crunch sounds going on. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was uh, really popular uh, for a couple of years in the scene. Sadly, he died. Um, after making his fourth shareware game, but not before he inspired this whole movement of uh, shareware on the Mac. And so you have it, uh, other people come along, like a guy called John Calhoun, who made a paper airplane uh, puzzle game called Glider. You've got to uh, navigate a, a paper plane through a house and get it out the window past a, a cat that's lazily sitting on the windowsill and will swap you out of the, out of the air. And you use the heat from uh, ducts on the floor to uh, give yourself a lift. So you go over the top of the duct that pushes you up to towards the ceiling and then you, you direct your, your plane down across and it's just a cool puzzle thing. Of course you have a bunch of arcade style games getting made. Solarian 2 was a, was a really popular one. Uh, it was inspired by Gallagher. Uh, Crystal Quest actually came from Patrick Buckland which was a really successful commercial game, came out of the shareware thing he'd made that's basically the same game but not as good, called uh, Crystal Raider. And then into the 90s, the commercial scene kind of faded away, except for a few companies. And so shareware is what kept things afloat. And you had companies emerge like Ambrosia Software and Freeverse and um, uh, Fantasoft. They did a game called Realms, uh, an RPG. Yeah, the yeah. companies come along. Uh, that basically were the darlings of the Macintosh scene, and they're sort of the equivalent of uh, Apogee and Epic over on the, the DOS side. I was wondering, like, the success of these shareware titles. By the sounds of it, 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 it still didn't really convince Apple to kind of take the game feed really big or serious until um, maybe uh, until they entered the PowerPC area, era, which we'll get on to a bit later. But, uh, yeah, were they just still had it wrapped up in applications and stuff like that. Apple went back and forth a lot. Uh, There's this weird cycle, uh, and it's still going today, I think, where every few years, somebody in a senior position at Apple says, we should do more about games. So suddenly it becomes this big drive. Let's get more game developers on board. Let's talk to them, find out what they need, make sure we build the build up the technology base for them so that they can make better games more easily. And then a couple more years passes by and it becomes a low priority and they sort of forget about it, they lose interest. Or what happened at one point in the late 90s, they just flat out said, games don't matter. After the Pippin. <laughs> a little ways after the Pippin, uh, a couple of years after that, this is when they were killing the games technology they had called Sprockets which uh, allowed for joysticks and stuff to be plugged in without um, too much coding on the developer's side to support them. And they were killing the Sprockets program, and the guy who had been uh, tasked with maintaining and updating the Sprockets 
stuff all by himself because they'd laid off the rest of the team. He took exception to this and he got told games aren't important to a consumer computer platform and he swore at the executive that if you think that you're an effing idiot. Well, I mentioned the Pippin there, actually. I mean, did that have much of an effect on Mac gaming at all in that era when the Pippin was on the market? <laughs> Not really. The Pippin didn't have an effect positively on anything. All it probably really achieved was to accelerate Bandai's uh, fall in fortunes. The Pippin was a, was a bit of a disastrous project from the start because Apple never fully bought into it. They, they were never properly committed to helping Bandai make a great system. And they even put it in the contract that it had to be really a compromised system. Because it, it, they didn't want anybody to think it was a low-cost Macintosh computer, even though in reality that's what it was. It had a Mac processor inside. It was running on a Mac operating system. So they wouldn't allow a hard drive to be included with the system. And that meant everything had to be run from CD-ROM, and CD-ROMs are still kind of slow. This is like 95, 96. And they they never made it a priority, and at the executive level, they just sort of wanted it to go away. Well, the first time I saw a Mac, I think, was in um, the late 80s. My auntie had a print shop, and she used it, um, you know, except a nice high-res monochrome display, and she used it for, like, printing out newsletters and that kind of thing. I think the next time I saw one wasn't until I was at university and we had um, Power Mac G3 and G4s. I was quite interested because the Mac wasn't all that popular over here in the UK until, you know, we got around, you know, the, the early 2000s, really. What was it like um, in Australia and, you know, other parts of the world? Did the Mac have outside the US much success in places? A bit, but not a lot. I think in Australia it was, and this is anecdotal, I don't know the data, uh, anecdotally, it seems like it was a little bit bigger than the Amiga, which did reasonably well here. Uh, mm. So, it, in Australia, it was sort of for, for a long time until mid to late 90s, there were three systems doing very well: the the Mac, the Amiga, and the PC. Then the Amiga faded away because well, Amiga was fading away. But it was always a, a a minority, a very clear minority. The PC was was much bigger, uh, except in education. I should say, um, the, the Mac was fairly common in schools. I, I, was, I was wondering about the sim games, because you mentioned Mac gaming before. There was, there was, it was kind of seen as a bit serious. And uh, hmm. the sim games, actually, even though they were quite serious, they brought a lot of fun to the title. How important were stuff like SimCity and uh, later SimAnt? And then um, I, even, I even saw in your book that you mentioned uh, Sim Tower as well. Yeah, Sim Tower was uh, inspired by Sim City, um, which has a, and it has a pretty cool story behind it, where um, the creator Yuta Saito was uh, just completely enamored with Sim City when he saw it running for the first time. He he told me that he played, he watched it for like 24 hours straight or something. He he was just so enraptured. How does this thing worked. This whole city has come to life. It's amazing. So, as the same city, it had started life on the Commodore 64, and Will Wright had, had uh, coded what amounts to a prototype version of it on the Commodore 64, and he'd been unable to get it commercially published. And then he met this guy, Jeff Braun, at a party, and, and that led to the foundation of Maxus. So, this story's been told before by other people at much greater length. 
with the uh, infrastructure that they created at Maxis, this team that they built around Will, they shifted SimCity to the Macintosh as the lead platform. They, they sort of, they re, they ported the engine over, they remade a whole bunch of the game. They hired someone to do graphics and that person basically took Mac Paint and made it a tool for painting a city to your screen instead of painting a picture on your screen. And Will had originally been inspired by the same ideas that inspired the Macintosh because uh, there's a chain there's a chain of uh, influences here. So Will was inspired by Pinball Construction Set, which had been inspired by the work that uh, Bill Budge, who made Pinball Construction Set, had done at Apple, another yeah. Apple connection. He worked at Apple, and uh, he saw what they were doing with the Lisa, which was the Macintosh's predecessor, and um, that went back to what uh, had happened at Seahawks Park in the in the 70s and early 80s, where they were building the ideas that inspired the Macintosh's whole um, desktop metaphor and the mouse and the, the window interface and everything. So Will Wright had built a really clumsy version of, of that idea on the Commodore 64. It wasn't really powerful enough a system to pull it off anyway. And then when it came to the Mac, the artist recognized that it was basically a city painting sort of game. You've got this tool palette that looks just like what Mac Paint looked like. And if, if people listening, if you put up if you look up a screenshot of Mac Paint and look up a screenshot of the first SimCity, you'll see that they're very, very similar. The tool palette is almost identical, except you've got residential zone and police station and stuff instead of let's draw a square and a circle or um, some text or something. There's the icons on that left side of the screen. Well, one of uh, my exposures to uh, SimCity was actually... The SimCity 2000 version was much better on the Mac, so um, a lot of Amiga users would actually emulate the Mac just to play the uh, Mac version on their Amigas, which is uh, pretty crazy. But um, I, I remember that was just a really nice version of it. I, I loved it. I, that was that was the one for me too. I spent so many hours playing uh, playing SimCity 2000, and I had the city and. Uh, I had this phase where I was naming all my cities after footballers, so uh, I had this city called Roberto Carlos that became a, a million plus uh, people in it. <laughs> I spent like a year building that city. Well, there have been a lot of classic gaming franchises started out on the Mac. I often see people, you know, commenting in amazement on YouTube videos when they find out that Halo was originally a Mac game. Can you tell us some of the most famous ones that started life on the Mac then that you feature in the book? Well, yeah, Halo possibly the most famous, um, where it, it wasn't released on Mac first, but they they were developing it on Mac and Windows uh, initially, and um, it owed a lot to the games that Bungie had made before Halo, which were uh, developed for Mac initially, um, the, the marathon first-person shooters and the myth strategy games, um, sort of real-time tactics strategy games. And then as for other really well-known stuff, Mist is the one that uh, always comes to my mind. Um, Mist was massive success on the PC, and it, it was the best-selling computer game of all time in the 90s until basically until the Sims uh, 
took first place from it in, I think, 2002. But Myst was a hypercard game, and hypercard was uh, strictly only a Macintosh um, tool. It was like a, if you think of the way web pages were, it, it, it was much the same as, as the way the web works. It was a, except there was no internet uh, for it. It was sort of like clicking through a web website on your computer in the 1980s and the early 90s. And it was using hypertext and hypermedia language. And it was really, really easy to use. It was following the principles of the Macintosh, which is a, a computer for the rest of us. Anyone can use this thing. Anyone can make amazing stuff with it. It was a multimedia authoring system, and that very much uh, dates it that term, doesn't it, multimedia? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So these, these two brothers, Robin and Rand Miller, they had been really fascinated by Hypercard when it first came out in 1987. Uh, Rand was actually working in a bank at the time, uh, and he had a wife and, a, and one or two kids, uh, young kids, and Robin was like he's several years younger than Rand. Robin was uh, at university, I think still living at home with, with their parents. They had a Mac in the basement. Uh, Rand had a Mac in his home, and and Rand called Robin up and said, let's try and do an interactive children's book in HyperCard, and I'm going to send you a copy of this thing. And Robin is a very talented artist. And so when Robin got the thing, he opened it up, and he got presented with this blank screen and all the, basically all the same drawing tools that are in Mac Paint. And he thought, well, what do I draw? and just on a whim decided to draw a manhole cover. And then he's thinking, well, what what should I do now? What, what What's going to be the reason that you turn the page? Or maybe you want to open the manhole cover. So now he draws a picture of the manhole with the cover off. And then he's suddenly thinking, maybe I make a beanstalk grow out of this manhole. And at that point, he's got, two diverging paths. You can go up the beanstalk or you can go down the manhole where the beanstalks just come from. And he realizes that he's he's not making a, a children's book. He just wants to keep exploring this possibility space. So he keeps drawing images and drawing and drawing and creating this whole world um, stream of consciousness. And that becomes a game called The Manhole, which was released in, I think, 1988. And... Uh, was the beginning of Cyan, the company that's still going today, to doing pretty well. Rand is still running it, actually. And so they made a couple more children's games, very similar to that, and then they wanted to do something more serious, more adult, and that eventually led them to uh, making what became Myst. And Myst was a massive success. It got ported to the PC. They did Riven, which was almost as big a success, and and then they were like, we don't want to do any more of this. And the next couple of missed games were were made by another studio while uh, Robin went off to explore new challenges. And Rand and the team at Cyan started to build a, an MMO in the missed universe that never really panned out for them, sadly. Well, you mentioned MMOs there as well. And I, I was just going to say, wow, so that was going on. Seventh Guest appeared as well, which was another... Yeah. I know, another huge title, but you uh, mentioned MMOs. Like, was network play a big element of gaming on the Mac? And was was there ever like a 
kind of play or online service where uh, people could do like over the internet? It was pretty big, and and there were a few Mac focused network play services. I think they were all pretty small time. Like there was one in California that got a fairly decent player base, but I don't think it really got beyond California and a few others scattered around. But network gaming was very big on the Mac because the Mac was always quite popular in the education space and uh, in offices. There, There were a lot of Macs in offices. And so as a result, there are a lot of places where you can have computers that are networked together. Then you you just needed to have cool games. And one game that uh, was really popular was called Bolo. Uh, It was like a a tank game, a tank shooting game from a top-down perspective. Really uh, complicated, but uh, very easy to to initially play. And... um, it had tens of thousands, maybe even into the six-figure numbers of players. It was just a shareware title and uh, was in continuous development several years before the developer got hired at Apple and Apple had a policy where you couldn't make stuff on the side. Once you join Apple, you had to cut all your side projects. So that was really big. You had um, Space with Ho was a cool game. Uh, this was a sort of a 4X-style strategy game. FA-18 Hornet, a flight simulator, was really big. Marathon, first-person shooter, of course. In that era, first-person shooters were taking over the world in the mid-90s. And Marathon was the Mac faithful's doom killer. Uh, that They would say, who needs doom when you've got Marathon? Because they thought, we got the better thing. Uh, and... Then when Quake and stuff came out, lots of people were playing that, of course. Uh, it's not like people were uh, that uppity about it. They would play ports uh, just as readily as they, they played uh, native stuff. Well, the Mac was one of the first systems to have a CD-ROM drive as standard as well. You know, we got into the early 90s era. Did many games take advantage of that then when CD-ROM emerged? Yes, yeah, some did. Uh, and we mentioned Myth before, and, and that, uh, or the lot to the CD-ROM. But, uh, uh, and there was also um, the Journeyman Project, which was a very cool um, game in the, in the Myst style. But before any of this, um, and before there was even a CD-ROM drive built into the Mac, back at the time when you'd have to get an external drive that cost like $1,000 or something, there were these two guys uh, from opposite, opposite sides of America who decided they would collaborate on a CD-ROM game. The one's in, one's in Chicago and the other one is in um, San Francisco or San Diego or something, somewhere in that Bay Area. And they decided, let's do this cool multimedia thing, 3D rendered adventure. Uh, it's going to be like an interactive movie. It's going to be so cool. Uh, the game is Spaceship Warlock, if anyone knows that. And... Uh, it's got this crazy development story where the two guys have to ship a hard drive back and forth across America because it's 1990 when they're developing it, or, or 1991, uh, sorry, uh, and you don't have broadband internet. You can't just burn a CD and, and send it across because CD burners cost tens of thousands of dollars still. You can't 
easily get these get the files that you're working on to the other person on the other side of the country. They're thousands of miles apart. So they get this external drive. It's 120 megabytes. That's megabytes. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got these multi-gigabyte, multi-terabyte things we talk about now, that this was just 120 megabytes, and it was huge. You wouldn't get a word doc into that now. <laughs> <laughs> and they, this is where they put the the only complete copy of the game. They've got backups on some floppy disks uh, of individual files, but they put the entire game on this one hard drive that gets couriered back and forth across the country so that they can each be working on their part of the game. One is doing the graphics and the design while the other one's doing the programming. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. Somehow the hard drive survives this whole process and they, they then ship off this one copy to the, the CD plant to, to get it mastered. And, and they did this whole thing in like nine months, which was phenomenal. The game came out, Spaceship Warlock, like retailing for a hundred bucks, which is pretty expensive, and it sold very well. They got millions of dollars in revenue. It was a massive hit in Japan, and a bunch of people bought CD-ROM drives just so that they could get this game. Just in the same way as um, Mist and the Seventh Guest drove uptake of computers that had built-in CD-ROM drives a couple of years later. Well, Apple kind of changed architecture so much like you're talking about um, when they went onto PowerPC as well and and they've just changed onto ARM as well Um, how important were these kind of emulation or like bridging services uh, that they have they've currently got uh, Rosetta 2 at the moment but uh, there were previous versions for all all the different generations they're really critical because game developers or game publishers were heavily reliant on their back catalogs, keeping them afloat. The new games, uh, that first six to 12 months was, as it is on every other platform, really critical. But uh, particularly the small companies, and and keep in mind that the big companies are probably small companies by the standards of uh, console publishers and PC publishers of the day. But the smaller ones are completely reliant on their back catalogs to stay afloat. The, the bulk of the audience is on the is on the older architecture, put it this way, and you want to target a larger as large an audience as you can when you're making a game. So very often the developers would need to make the game compatible with the older system. It was then a lot easier for them, thanks to these emulation technologies, to have games work on both the new architecture and the old architecture. But then also keep in mind that it wasn't just architecture changes. So it wasn't just these processes that were changing. Uh, it's also there was a major operating system overhaul uh, right around the time my book uh, ends its story. The, oh, the classic era. So OS 9 was the last system of the classic era. And then into yeah. OS 10 or OS X, as some people call it, uh, which was the sort of modern era. And now we've dropped the X and it's just Mac OS. And Apple breaks things every two years, uh, which drives developers insane because suddenly they've got this thing that's only two or three years old and it doesn't work on the latest system. But that transition as well was a huge thing because they had this whole new technology that they had to build. They called it Carbon. And then after Carbon, they had something called Cocoa. And then they have built all these other new things since then. Uh, more recently, there was something called Metal and Vulcan. And they come up with these crazy names. 
Mm. Yeah, I think you're right there, because when OS X first came out, yeah, obviously classic mode was in there as well. Mm. But before that, I mean, I, I've still got a, a Power Mac G4 set up with OS 9 on there, and that can play, obviously, most of the PowerPC stuff, and even, like, the 68K stuff as well. So, mm. you know, back then, you could go quite far back. Uh, and it runs in full speed as well. There's not, like, um, you know, there's not usually, like, a slowdown with them. They're, they're, they're really well done. Yes, it's superbly done. And part of that is uh, down to just how much of a step forward the PowerPC was over the 68K era, which taps into a part of how the, the Amiga and the Atari ST struggled to, to stay relevant. They, they weren't able to make that transition fast enough to the latest processors, and they were left behind as things transitioned to 3D, whereas Apple had, Apple had invested heavily in co-funding this PowerPC technology, and that helped them in the mid-90s transition to 3D and stay relevant. But the PowerPC was a huge advancement technologically, and even those very first PowerPC Macs ran the 68K stuff really surprisingly well. There was barely anything that had a noticeable slowdown, which I thought was phenomenal. And it's been much the same in the years since when they've done uh, other transitions. Well, what would you regard as the golden age of Mac gaming? To give it a broad stroke, I'd say the classic era. I think that's because that's when you had, across that whole era, across that uh, 17 years or so, you had a distinct Mac games flavor. There, There were companies that were entirely focused on making games for the Mac, and that largely vanished as we got into the OS X era. And if you wanted me to to go a bit narrower than just that whole classic era, uh, I'd say the mid to late 80s, like about 86 to 88, was a a really thriving, exciting time uh, because the commercial developers from big companies like EA and stuff were an accolade. They were trying things on the Mac, testing out the waters, see, see if the audience picks things up. And you had all the people who had uh, been inspired by the Macintosh itself making their phenomenal early games, like the, the Icon simulations guys were doing the MacVenture games, uh, Silicon Beach Software were doing Dark Castle, Crystal Quest, you had the, that first golden era of shareware Mac games, they had a cool thing called The Colony from David Allen Smith, uh, which was a, a sort of a first-person shooter with a really deep storyline and uh, some quite remarkable technology given it was the 1980s. Well, if somebody wanted to get into retro Mac gaming, what's the kind of good place that you point them to and say, uh, this title's likely to impress you? I think if you're, if you're open to a bit of aimless whimsy, the, the manhole is a really cool thing to get into. Uh, it's not much of a gamey game, but it's super cool. As for more gamey type stuff, uh, Marathon is pretty cool. If you play it with the, the Aleph 1 tech, then you'll get a much more modern experience. If you try and play the, the, ultimate, the original Mac version through emulation, you might, might find it a bit uh, harder to, to enjoy. Uh, Escape Velocity from Ambrosia is really cool. Dark Castle and the Colony are great, but they're kind of clumsy uh, if you weren't playing games of that sort in that era on other platforms, then I don't know how you're going to go with it. 
explorative or touch and go, depending on your on, on your experience, your expectations. I personally am a huge fan of a game called Glider Pro, which was a commercial version of Glider released in the mid-90s that had a huge number of fan-made uh, houses for you to explore, and, and not everything is actually a house. A lot of houses are much more uh, out of this world. You had space stations. The Titanic was one. You, you could go outside, inside, a, a, and we're talking about hundreds of rooms interconnected with each other. There's houses that will play themselves. It's a really cool, deep game. And I think often back then there'd be, you know, some games that I played on different platforms that are actually, you know, looking back, superior on the Mac. I remember the Mac version of Prince of Persia was, you know, much enhanced over the DOS version. Yeah, that, that was a phenomenally good port. Uh, I had that uh, as a kid as well, and uh, I was playing it in black and white, but it was just brilliant. And I was, I was almost shocked when I saw what most other people had played for Prince of Persia. Was, how, how did you guys cope with this? It's so much worse. Well, let's get on to your new book then, um, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, available now with our Bitmap books. So, you know, we'll display that. They are our, the sponsor of our podcast. But we want to get you one because it's such a fascinating topic and the book looks incredible as well. Um, so what's kind of the aim of the book then? Where did the idea come from? The aim of the book is very much just to let the world know that there were actually all these really cool, innovative, um, forward-thinking games on the Mac, and the Mac was always a games platform. It just was never given the credit that it deserved. And a lot of ideas that turned out to be really influential, like stuff that came out of SimCity, for instance, the, the whole interface of how SimCity works, was inspired by the Mac. The Mac inspired a lot of people to think up better ways to design games and to play games, um, better ways for games to work. And then on a more personal note, it's um, it's a way for me to to get the stories behind all the games that I that I loved as a kid. I, I was I was playing games on on consoles as well, Super Nintendo and PlayStation, but the Mac was a huge part of my youth, and I got to learn all the amazing stories behind the games that I had loved. Some of these stories are really cool, and some of them are very unexpected, and some of the influences are just what I'd expect in completely different ways to how I expect it. Now, that's a bit of a cryptic statement, but if you look at the game Escape Velocity, it, it looks like Elite in 2D, and it was inspired by Elite. But Matt Birch, who made it, had never played Elite when he created Escape Velocity. He had owned a copy of Elite. He bought it from the store. He was on his bike riding home, and the copy protection device fell out of his bag or something. And this elaborate (laughs) prism thing that you needed to to decode uh, the the copy protection uh, key. And he got home, and he was devastated. He went back to the shop and they wouldn't let him give it back because it was missing part of the game. And so he just read the manual over and over and over and over. (laughs) And then years later, he made a game in large part based on his imaginings of what Elite was doing. That's crazy. Well, who who have you spoken to for the book then? I did around about 80 interviews. Uh, So... I talked to, to Matt Belcher, I just mentioned, and John Calhoun, and a bunch of other people who make cool shareware stuff. 
I talked to a couple of the guys from Bungie. I talked to basically everyone from Silicon Beach Software about their games, the Dark Castle and stuff. Uh, I talked to David Allen Smith about the colony. Cyan founders, Robin and Rand Miller, they were both very generous with their time. Yeah, I talked to a whole lot of people, uh, some, some people who were doing ports in the 90s, uh, some interesting stories there. There were a couple of people who basically were the, uh, the legends of the porting scene. They, every major game, they would have a hand in doing the Mac version. So I got to talk to them about uh, all their cool stories and about uh, this one lady Glenda Adams, who was able to get Mac-only Easter eggs into Tomb Raider 2 and Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, with Apple's permission, they were both uh, using Mac stuff uh, for Duke Nukem 3D. They played the ni- she got it to play the 1984 ad on the theater screen in the first level of Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, so on the DOS version, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, it's just like a, a lady in her underwear dancing. So yeah, yeah. Uh, memory of my youth. That was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the on the Mac, if you if you enter this code, I think it's D N nineteen eighty four or something like that. Uh, you unlock this ad to play instead. So it'll play the original nineteen eighty four Macintosh ad. It was played at the Super Bowl. Uh, it's the oh, wow. really famous ad with the lady running down the corridor and she throws a hammer at the screen and it says the uh, uh, let's make sure that nineteen eighty four is not like. 1984, the book, something along those lines. Yeah. And in Tomb Raider 2, there's a cutscene where Lara is on her laptop and uh, she's doing some cool satellite stuff. And in Tomb Raider 2, it is a power book instead of some random PC. Well, your book um, is available now, this special expanded edition, um, 480 pages from uh, bitmapbooks.co.uk. If you ever thought the Mac wasn't a gaming platform, check out Richard's book. It's just incredible. really opens your eyes to just how much was going on on that platform. I think particularly as well for people like, you know, over here in the UK and Europe who maybe didn't grow up with the Mac back in the 80s and 90s, I think is uh, definitely an eye-opening read. Have you got any plans to do uh, any future books then or uh, any other platforms you want to cover? Yeah, I've got lots of plans for future books. Um, I do intend to do more on Mac gaming stuff. But I want to do a volume two. I've done a bunch of interviews for it, but It'll be probably two, three years out before I'm, I'm ready to put that out. I have another book coming out next year from uh, Unbound called Shareware Heroes, Independent Games at the Dawn of the Internet. And it is looking at that uh, whole shareware scene in the 80s and the 90s from right. a broad perspective. And it's obviously sort of DOS-focused because that's where the bulk of the shareware stuff was happening. but I've tried to be reasonably platform agnostic in it, so I've got some Mac shareware stuff covered in it, so uh, a few really cool Atari ST shareware things. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have, have ever heard of the Grandad games. They're really cool adventure games. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was watching that on YouTube actually not long ago. They're hilarious. Yeah, I, I, that was such a, an exciting discovery for me. I never knew about it until I was researching the book. Uh, they're just so funny. And I, I managed to track down the developer, uh, Ian Scott. He, he went on to be a plumber after making the game uh, and got to talk to him about the stories behind it. And so I've got uh, Jeff Minter's really influential shareware game covered in there as well, a bit of Amiga stuff. So I tried to not just 
be totally DOS-focused. I wanted to look at the shareware scene more holistically. That sounds amazing. We'll have to get you back on, Richard, when the, when the book's ready. Yeah, I, a really interesting chat. Yeah, I'd love to, to come along again. Well, I'll link up, of course, your current book in, in our show notes this week as well, and your podcast, you know, people, if you love our show, you've got to check out Richard's podcast as well. Um, and it's been really interesting chatting about Mac Gaming, not really a topic that we've covered much on this podcast, so uh, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories, and best of luck with the book. Thanks. On this week's show, a new Simpsons retro point-and-click adventure. How to play Sega Saturn games on your PlayStation 4. And we chat to the voice behind Soul Calibur, Mortal Kombat, and over 300 video games. Lani Manella. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, something you need to check out that's coming up from them this month is Go Straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups. Celebrating classics like Streets of Rage, Golden Axe, Final Fight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and over 450 pages, this takes a deep dive into beat-em-up legends. Pre-orders are available from February 14th, and check out the full details at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 313, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wordy, Rappy Abbott, and me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show, taking you behind the scenes on classic video games and, of course, a healthy dose of nostalgia laid on as well. You know, I'm really hoping that Ravi is on his A-game this week, because uh, you and I are probably not, are we, Joe? Yeah, I'm not feeling, uh, I say I'm not feeling 100%, I'm feeling about 5%, mm. perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> it, it's, been, it's been two years coming, but COVID has finally got me. But not only has it finally got me, it's got me like two days after you got it as well, didn't it, Dan? Um, it's better, we haven't seen you. We haven't seen you. Like, you know, nothing else transmitted. It's a pure coincidence uh, that we've both got it at the same time. But I'm here, I'm powering through, I'm on the energy drinks, you know, and Rabbi has pulled it out of the bag this week and just done, like, he's done the whole interview on his own. He's done pretty much all the research he had to on his own just so I could stay all tucked up in bed. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> Well, it's it's pretty awesome because, I don't know, we're doing interviews separately at the moment. I guess it's with time and stuff. We're not we're not splitting up as the Retro Hour team. And, <laughs> and, Joe, and Joe and I were shivering in bed, I think. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I had a fever. Because <laughs> you guys did an amazing interview last week. Uh, that, that was really good fun, and I really enjoyed that. Ian Grieve, what a legend. Oh, absolute legend. And uh, today... We've got another legend on, and this is something a bit different. Uh, we've never had a video game voice actor on before, so this is a really entertaining interview. It's with Lani Manella, and she's an absolutely amazing vocalist. Like, I can't believe how much stuff she's done. She started, like, this interview, we talk all about it, and she started with Laserdisc and kind of, you know, the really early days of doing voice on video games. Went into CD-ROM with the voice director behind Duke Nukem 3D. So, you know, she was playing other female roles in Duke Nukem 3D. She found Johnson John as well, who uh, played Duke himself. You know, she mm. she went into Diablo, um, just loads of titles. Uh, we talk about Bubs, Bubsy 3D, your absolute favourite game there, Dan. 
<laughs> she was actually the voice of Bubsy. She does. She does Bubsy on the interview. Wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Unreal Tournament. Um, uh, the list could go on. The Last of Us. Uh, you know, just looking at her credits is absolutely insane. And this chat's really interesting because we talk about the kind of development and progression. Because you know, back then a lot of studios just used their staff as voice actors for games, and especially yeah. when CD-ROMs were coming out and stuff. You know, uh, they they really didn't think of it as a as a main kind of thing, especially not being realistic as well. Like um, realism is in games now, and it's what it's all about. But back then, it was like a, a bit a bit of a kind of novelty to even have a voice on a game. And you know what? Actually, it's kind of a part of gaming where. There are so many, like, voice clips and stuff in games when you talk about, you know, Mortal Kombat and Soul Calibur, you know, beat up games like that. Well, we all recognise those voice samples in there. And they're a big part of the game, but they're probably a lot more subconscious than something like the graphics, for example. But it's still a very big part of it. Yeah, but even, like, the sounds of... She does a whole piece where she's talking about getting hit by a grenade or getting hit by a bullet yeah. and, and, and how the kind of expression needs to be really extreme and, and, and really out there. And when she actually did a lot of these sounds, I was instantly transported back to, you know, like playing FPS games on my PC back in the days. And, uh, you know, it's it's just amazing to kind of hear. And uh, it's a great area for us to explore, actually, uh, voice acting in video games, especially for an audio podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure you're going to be familiar with many of the games uh, that Ravi chats about with our special guest, Lanny Manella, coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, uh, we're poised over our mute buttons for our fits of coughing, I'm sure, Joe, but yeah. we can get into the news stories this week. Because there is, I mean, there's loads of good news stories that we need to chat about. And uh, The Simpsons, I mean, admittedly, you know, The Simpsons on TV... Kind of past its prime now. I still watch it if it comes on. But there are some incredible Simpsons video games. And this one, I was quite pleased to see, is not only a retro-style point-and-click adventure game that takes one of the best scenes of classic Simpsons. Someone has made the famous steamed hams scene into a retro point-and-click game. I love this. Like, I absolutely love this. I'm going I'm to hand it over to Ravi in, in a second to tell us more about the game. But I just... I, I adore season, like, 1 to 10 of The Simpsons, you know, and it really peaks kind of like season 3 to season 7, and the Steamed Hams episode is from season 7, the uh, episode where it's like the, the short films about Springfield, there's like, I think it's called 22 yeah. short films about Springfield or something like that, and the whole, like, uh, with Principal Skinner, <laughs> and he's meant to be making lunch for uh, Superintendent Chalmers, and he goes and buys the, the Krusty Burgers, and, uh, for me, it's just like, legendary isn't it <laughs> it's the ultimate farce like uh, you, you see that episode and to me that's like Laurel and Hardy or something yeah. you know, as in Chalmers yeah. it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. so classic American and every line is like it gets more and more ridiculous like his whole house <laughs> is on fire yeah. and he's just like okay see you and, <laughs> like, and he's just like what's fun. going in there and he's like it's the Northern Lights and he's like what it's like the Aurora Borealis whatever it is and he's like in your kitchen he's like yeah in March he's like yeah <laughs> and and this has basically become a meme because everybody just loves it so much. I remember seeing like the vaporwave remixes of uh, a yeah. hands that people did and stuff. But this seems to be a, a kind of graphical adventure in the style of like Le- Leisure Suit Larry or, yeah. or one of these old games. Monkey Island, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's even got the 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 the, the fonts and the text um, look exactly like Monkey Island. Uh, and the scum engine UI and everything, it's all very similar to, yeah, those classic LucasArts adventures. It looks to me like you have to pick, like, what actually happens in the episode for it to kind of, like, play out, you know, to do what it's, you know, what it's meant to do. But it just looks like it's just crafted really, really well. So this has been made by Neo Demon on Game Jolt. Is that correct? Yeah, so what it is, I mean, it's only a very short game. Mm. It's around six minutes. It is just that scene. Yeah. Um, so it's not like a full experience or anything. It's really just, a, you know, a, a short mini game you can play for a bit of fun. And uh, he's put it up there. I mean, obviously, the big thing everyone's going to be asking is, uh, you know, obviously, Disney own copyright to The Simpsons now. Oh, yeah. And they're going to be all right with this. And they're actually saying, you know, there is disclaimers in there saying all trademarks belong to them and everything. And, you know, they're encouraging you to buy it. They, they can't as much stop the power of steamed hands. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> on the internet. they're not going to be able to take it down. Like, they'll, they'll, be, they'll have to have a department dedicated to taking down steamed hands content. I just. I, I that's brilliant. I just love it how, like, you have to, like, click on the steam cans in your inventory and put it on the table and stuff like that and serve it to him. It's just, it's so silly, but I love it. And the graphical style of it really does look like you'd be playing it on, like, like you say, like an old PC or a Super Nintendo. Yeah, it, it looks, it does look more like, I know you say the Super Nintendo, it looks more, and I, maybe that's because I've got the association of Simpsons games with being on, like, those those platforms yeah does seem a bit like more like that than say monkey islands um, yeah where it's a bit more you know detailed but then that's the simpsons look isn't it kind of cartoony and you know yeah they've captured it really really well i love it yeah, so if you're a fan of those uh, classic point-and-click adventure games and you want a bit of a giggle for a few minutes, like I said, it's only a short game, and it's uh, free to download. You can play it on Windows, and it's on the uh, Game Jolt website, so I'll link that up if you want to give it a free download at theretrohour.com. Now, something else that I know um, we've been talking about on the show for quite a while, all these rumours that keep going out, and to be honest, it's looking more and more likely that we are going to get a reboot of GoldenEye 007 for the Xbox. Now, we did have that um, little leak about the Xbox achievements that we talked about a couple of months ago, didn't we? When um, there was actually an achievements list for GoldenEye on the Xbox One that was leaked out there. But now it looks like there could be um, a few more clues as to this coming game. Yeah, so there's been a tweet during the rounds, which was tweeted on uh, February 4th by somebody called Andy Robinson. He tweeted, I wouldn't be surprised if a certain super spy returns in the next few weeks. Now, obviously, that could mean anybody. It could be Secret Squirrel. I can't think of any spy versus spy. But, no, it's, it's definitely it's got to be James Bond because Andy Robinson uh, used to work for Platonic Games, um, which, you know, notably is comprised of many of the developers who worked for Rare and worked on GoldenEye. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, people... They, they did ukulele, didn't they? Yeah, um, I believe, so, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like a follow-on uh, to Banjo yeah. and Kazooie as well, so that's like a kind of connection with Rare there. Yeah, so it's like we're, we're putting the puzzle together here ourselves, but, you know, it's not like 2 plus 2 equals 5, it is 2 plus 2 equals 4, you know, with the evidence there. So I, I feel like from that tweet we're probably going to see, you know, some sort of trailer or something, you know, coming in the next couple of days. I mean, we're recording this on the 8th, so, you know, that, that's four days ago that tweet's been out there now. It's not been removed or anything like that, so, 
hopefully it comes because you know as Ravi said before we end up talking a lot about rumours on the show yeah. and we just you just want it to become true sometimes it's it is, it is speculative but it's yeah. also it's like it's the ultimate isn't it getting Goldeneye on a new yeah. system and having new features like achievements and uh, online multiplayer you know for me it's like Goldeneye and a Dreamcast 2 and I'd just be like in heaven <laughs> <laughs> the two ultimate things that I want that would be know. amazing when I said that as well I was thinking of all the Sega like rumours we always talk about <laughs> so yeah that would be or Goldeneye on the Dreamcast 2 <laughs> would be exclusive <laughs> would be pretty amazing but yeah hopefully we'll get there eventually but hopefully in the next couple of weeks we will actually see something, you know, and there's a lot of Bond mania at the moment, you know, the success of the last film. It, it makes uh, sense to me. It's like, uh, you know, it's a guaranteed score, that is. If yeah. they do it right, you know, that's that's going to be huge. And yeah, I think it'll probably be huger than many of the retro titles that have come out and many other ports that have come out. It's like, you know, the, the ultimate one that we, we all wanted for a, for a real long time. I remember... That the co-op fun behind Goldeneye was just absolutely amazing, and I'd I'd, I'd even go to my neighbour's house and we'd just sit there and uh, it'd just be me and him, and we'd just lay proximity mines everywhere. Yeah. And it would be like <laughs> the hardest just to get across the map. Lay find him would be yeah. lay proximity mines everywhere and then run at each other. We're just slapping each. Yeah, and have them like under the stairs and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh man, what a game! I mean, if, if it comes out, we're just gonna have to stream it or something like the three of us playing it, because it is just such a good game, and, you know, we've been talking about rumours about it now for, what, the best part of two years, so, as fingers crossed, we're, co- we're coming to the, we're, the light at the end of the tunnel. We noticed that tweet as well, have you guys noticed the uh, the Apple Watch? No. Now, if you look closely, because um, these tweets actually look like they were, uh, <laughs> the pictures Andy's posted on the night out with his friend, and if you scroll down about the third one in, there's actually drunk going like, if you look very closely, his friend's wearing an Apple Watch that actually has got the same face on there that Bond had in um, in 007 in the game, in Goldeneye. Oh, Night. I didn't know that. So there's another clue. Someone zoomed in on that, and it looks like it's the same uh, watch face. Oh, I can't see so that. It's telling me I have to sign up to Twitter to have a look. <laughs> it's worth it, Joe. <laughs> but yeah, so it's uh, it's looking more and more likely like it's going to happen. And again, I mean, we know we've talked about it before. It's the fact that obviously I think the big reason that it hasn't happened before is the licensing. That's obviously kind mm-hmm. of the, the tricky bit about this game, I imagine. But it just seems like it would be a, a way to print money, providing it's a good game and providing and the engine's done correctly as well. Yeah, because that engine went on to the Time Splitters franchise and stuff, and like you know. That engine was so good to play on that um, I, I hope they kind of keep the same feel and vibe. Like, I'd hate to see, like, a, a GTA uh, Vice City style um, Unity kind of remake, you know. I'm hoping that companies have learned from that. Because it's messing with people's memories, especially games of this legendary status, you know, when the games that kind of people grew up with and they've got such strong nostalgia for it, You've got to do a good job. If it, if it, if it, people like play Platonic, and well, you, yeah. you don't play Platonic, but uh, you know those those kind of people know what they're doing with uh, releasing these titles. Yeah, I have every faith in them, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that story apparently in the next coming weeks. So uh, as soon as we hear more, you will be the first to know. And you know, we're playing retro games, particularly when I get like on my Amiga or my Commodore 64. I know it's a little bit divisive. 
Because I look at, you know, Facebook groups and stuff, and a lot of people, uh, you know, they're playing their Amigas and the C64s with Mega Drive pads and that kind of thing, which I don't think you should actually play a Commodore 64 with a Mega Drive pad. Apparently that can be very bad for it. But a lot of people prefer to use joypads, as we call them, instead of joysticks. I've got to say, if I'm playing certain games, you know, for example, I couldn't imagine playing something like Lotus Turbo Challenge 2 using a control pad. For me, that's got to be a joystick game. So there are definitely certain games, and beat-em-ups as well, where I feel a lot more at home with a stick. Platformers, you know, it's weird. Like, I know a lot of console people are, are used to game pads and stuff, and I, I, I always played my platformers with a joystick, and it's always that kind of... Well, Amiga up to jump, but at least it's a kind of joystick to do, you know. Yeah, and no, I find that, you know, the fact that you and I kind of grew up with a computer background and joysticks were the de facto standard on computers, really. And Joe, you're, you're like, you know, you're a console kid. I mean, do you find a, do you find that the other way around? Do you find it awkward to play with joysticks? Yeah, I, I, I was going to try, I was going to try and stay quiet, but now you've asked me. <laughs> um, you know, like you say, I'm a console guy, um, and I think 100% there's a time and a place for joysticks, you know, especially like in, you know, arcades where you're playing like Afterburner or, you know, Star Wars pod racing. Like, you know, I definitely feel like, you know, uh, and I'm thinking of the Star Wars game now with the lightsaber battle at the end. You like a big joystick? Yeah, I like the big, big joysticks like that. And obviously like proper arcade joysticks as well for fighters and stuff. Um, But when it comes to, if I was to be playing like an old, you know, old Mega Drive or SNES or something like that, playing a platformer or, even a racing game, I just, I wouldn't be able to do it. Like, I just would not be able to do it. I mean, I think we've played Micro Machines, micro machines before on the Amiga with them, and I just, I can't get on with them. I, I, I'm a controller guy. I'm a D-pad kind of guy. Well, not to get too innuendo-y, but um, back then, <laughs> a, jo- a joystick was your kind of sense of pride. You know, you'd go around someone's house <laughs> and you'd, <laughs> you'd whip out your, 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 your best joystick. <laughs> How does your mind work, Ravi? <laughs> no, no, but I, you know what I mean? You, you, you'd have an advantage if you had a good joystick. And yeah. um, you'd be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to play you with this one. And, you know, uh, <laughs> now I've got that this road. I can't, I can't dig myself out this hole. You can't go over that. I know what you're saying, though. So when I was a kid, we always had... My mum, I don't know if your mum was the same, she'd always buy me, like, the crappest, cheapest joysticks. You know, if I broke one, she'd go to, like, the market and buy me. I think I generally always got cheetah 125s. I, I had a Do cheetah as well. Like, um, I had hand-me-down ones, so I had a cheetah star probe, which was uh, quite a huge one, but... um. It, that I think that was a hand-me-down uh, that that I got, and I had even the old Atari one, you know, the uh, plastic classic one with the one button. I'm looking at the Star Probe now. Yeah, I do remember that. That's an interesting look to it. That's a big joystick. Yeah, I can see why you were proud of it. It's very very clicky <laughs> as well. Yeah. Well, I had a, the Zip Stick is probably my all-time favourite joystick, you know, for like Amiga games and C64. That's generally the stick I use on there. I know a lot of people love the Competition Pros as well. Which um, there have been some like maybe arcade yeah, joysticks. The, the one recently. with the ball on the top was that the uh, competition. Yeah, the more yeah. yeah arcade style joysticks, and there have been you know quite a few efforts recently. I mean, obviously Monster Joysticks who sponsored this show recently have uh, got some incredible arcade style joysticks, and we've got the arcade ones that kind of um, they take the Competition Pro style but put the arcade parts in there as well, so it feels a lot more premium. But the reason we're talking about joysticks is, um, and a couple of people have sent us this on uh, Twitter and Facebook over the last couple of weeks, this is a thing called the Unithor. Now, this is a new joystick that's coming soon for retro computers, and uh, this thing 
looks pretty impressive. And actually, it takes a lot of the things that probably we all found a little bit annoying about desktop joysticks back in the day and improves upon them quite a lot. For example, did you ever use the sticky cups on the bottom of a joystick? Uh, yeah, yeah, all the time. I've constantly been licking them, and then after a while, they taste really weird. <laughs> you still kind of have to lick them and stick them on there because you would really, like, you know, push them left and right, and, uh, yeah, you don't want to snap your joystick. And, you know, whenever I buy a second-hand joystick and it's got those on the bottom, I just take a pair of pliers and I pull them off. Because I know that they've probably got, like, 30 years' worth of dried of spit on there. <laughs> it's not something you want to get Oh, man. <laughs> but this new joystick here, though, it does away with the uh, suction cups of old. And actually, it's got these kind of studs on the bottom that actually uh, make it a lot more solid, a lot more durable as well, and actually keep it positioned onto the desk. Oh, cool. So there are a lot of things like that as well. And they've got stuff like... Um, some really good ergonomics on there as well. Because you play with a lot of these older joysticks, and actually they give you a bit of hand cramp after a yeah, while. It looks like a, a PC flight stick of like the later uh, kind of PC, but in the stylings of like uh, older, more classic joysticks. Yeah, the position of the fire buttons, and it's got, you know, like a, a big <laughs> yoke on there, or shaft, whatever you call it on the joystick. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is really designed for classic arcade games, though. It's not like a, it's not an analog stick for flight sims or anything like that. Um, instead, it's designed, you know, to play double dragons with and your golden axes and that kind of thing. And there are different colours on it. They've got um, LEDs are coming soon as well. There's a plutonium orange version, a radioactive uranium version of it as well. And it's actually got um, two uniquely operating fire buttons, which um, was always the thing that annoyed me back in the day when you had, um, you know, for example, the zip stick. It's got two buttons on there, but they actually both do the same thing. And you had auto fire on some, didn't you, as well? So you could have a little switch and just, you know, constantly hammer the fire button and just use that, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if this has got auto fire on it, actually, looking at it. Um, yeah, but they were handy when you were playing, particularly shooting up games. Yeah. I was trying having that on would be quite useful. So, yeah, that could, and I see I haven't got that on there already. I, I don't think this is actually there. Uh, looks like they're going to be doing something maybe like a Kickstarter or something at some point. Um, so, you know, that could be definitely something that maybe people will, uh, will ask for. It's got kind of um, multiple options on it. So it's like A, B, C, yeah. and D at the bottom. And maybe you can select different configurations and then, uh, you know, pre-tell it to auto-file or something like that. Yeah, it looks like there's definitely some element of programmability on this, um, which is handy because, I mean, there were some games, like I remember if you plugged in a Mega Drive pad into the Amiga and you played um, Desert Strike, the uh, the C button on the Mega Drive would actually change the weapons, whereas before you'd have to hit the space bar on the Amiga keyboard to do that. Oh, okay. So there are, you know, quite a few games that were made for two-button joysticks if you had one, so it's definitely something that I think could be taken more and advantage of. This also has the different inputs, right? So it's got the D-sub, but um, yeah. you can also get a USB version. Yeah, it looks like there's going to be a version of that later on, you know, for emulators and stuff. But I think, yeah, the original one's going to be Amiga C64 Atari Spectrum as well. You know, that kind of classic um, DB9 connector on there made for retro machines. So, uh, yeah, it looks like they're going to be doing this on Kickstarter by the looks of it. They haven't announced any more details yet, but it does look very cool. And I've, I've liked that, you know, the fact that in recent years, there's kind of a bit of attention coming back on the joysticks again, because I think there are certain games where they just feel right. So uh, Yeah, and I guess it's certain generations and certain users like like we kind of discussed earlier and that yeah i think uh it, it's quite a nice thing actually to get a luxury one i'd love to get one and hook it up to my um modern gaming system and kind of see see how that works yes it's called the uh uni joy is the website if you want to check it out and uh the joystick's called the uh the uni thor and we'll keep an eye on that and let you know when the kickstarter launches 
Now, we've got lots more news stories to get through, and, of course, our interview coming up, uh, going behind the world of video game voice acting with Lonnie Manella. She's coming up on the show in just a minute. Can we take a quick second, though, just to give a huge thank you to the people who make it possible for us to bring up this little show for you every single Friday and chat to legends of the industry. I mean, we've done this now for uh, God, over 60 years. We've been doing this podcast every week. And I don't know about you guys, it's always the highlight of the week when we sit down and record an episode of this. Still love it as much as the day. I love it. You know, it doesn't feel like a, a, a chore or a task because, you know, we've got all these people behind us supporting us and that makes it absolutely fantastic. And just meeting up with you guys, you know, I'd do this anyway in a pub. The fact is... It's being recorded and it's being professionally done with, like, interviews and stuff. And, you know, we're independent as well. Like, I look at the podcast charts and there's a lot of people in there, like, you know, IGN and stuff like that. And BBC, there's a lot of big players in there that mm. have a lot of backing. And it's just, like, literally you, me and Joe. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we're able to do this because of Patreon and, and the support from our fans, which is just... Absolutely amazing, but, you know, for your support, you do get some good stuff back, don't you? Yeah, so we do um, an extra podcast every month just for our patrons called The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, the most recent episode, we actually do a deep dive into the year 1993. Next week, I'm going to be dropping a bonus episode, because I've had loads of people ask me about this, of Ian Greaves, now, I guess last week, who so many people want to hear more from him, and he actually did another hour interview with me and you didn't need Joe that we're just going to put out to our patrons he did he was an absolute legend and you know he understood the task and he was like oh patreon he was like yeah let's make some money let's do it he was like <laughs> you know he, he, it was so like real and down to earth you know and I mean you know j- jokes aside it was an absolutely amazing thing that he was like let's do another hour and you know let's let's you know, do a little bit more of a deep dive, a little bit more of the uh, the stories that can't be on the main show, if you know what I mean. Say too hot for TV. Basically. Too hot for TV, absolutely, uh, which we're going to be putting out next week, which I think is going to be an absolutely fantastic episode. Wait till you hear the story about him introducing Gary Oldman to Billy Connolly on the plane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was worth downloading. Yeah, yeah, some foul language in there as well, which just had me falling out of my feet. Um, but, you know, Ravi's spot on, like, you know, every week it feels like talking to my mates down at the pub kind of thing when we do this podcast. And it, it is amazing that we 